This is the Truth Warrior Podcast with your host, David Whitehead. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Truth Warrior. What date is it? It is Friday, August 18th, 2023. And the world is still going pretty crazy. There's so much going on. Canada's burning. We got wildfires happening again all over the place. Uh, I wonder how many arsonists are going to be arrested this time. Who knows? Uh, but I'm wanting to get into a little bit of philosophy with you today because I think it's going to be very relevant to the rise of tyranny, the loss of freedom, the introduction to the world of humanity 2.0 and the uh, doing away with the old version of humanity. And with that comes all kinds of philosophical premises. It comes with uh, the discussion about scientific materialism. We get into all this stuff about free will, determinism. It all comes up and it's all relevant. And that's why I want to really dive into it because we have leading intellectuals, academics, authors, and it's heading into the world of celebrities now. All the influencers are really pushing for this idea that freedom is an illusion. And you know, thinking about the context of everything we just witnessed, the big debate of our time about whether you had a right as a free sovereign individual to decide whether you were going to take part in a mass human experimentation campaign um, that was ushered in by way of coercion and by way of breaching laws that were once established. But the reason why these new leaders and dictators had such an effortless job of introducing a lot of the elements of this technocratic new world, new normal system is because they are pushing the ideology of psychological determinism in the entire milieu, in the, the social dialogue. And they've been doing it for a long time. And there's a lot of people that believe it. And if you operate with that belief system that humans are basically just Android robots, organic robots that don't really have any free will or soul or mind of their own, then you start to read many of the quotes that I've gone through with you before on this show from various elite globalist people from secret societies, etc. And uh, you start to understand how they've constructed their worldview and why they've come to the conclusions that they have and why they are pushing for the solutions to all these problems, whether they're naturally occurring or induced or created in order to achieve various political, social, economic agendas or whatever, power grabs, essentially. Um, we have to start understanding the underpinnings of the philosophy at work here because None of this stuff, this is what I really want to highlight, and I try to highlight a lot in my work here, is that none of this stuff is new. None of the stuff you're hearing, you're going to hear from Yoel Harari or Sam Harris or any of the advocates of um, especially psychological determinism. None of it's new. This goes back to debates between Greek philosophers, between basically all of philosophy. It's a debate within religion and theology. It's been a debate within science. I'm going to show you scientists that disagree with this notion that humans don't possess free will. And we've got to clinch this argument because you're not going to win any debates. You're not going to be able to uh, convince anybody in the legitimacy of you having freedom of choice or you being this thing called an individual. 
that has your own mind, your own volition that you control or not control, but that you are at least participating in this life on a free will level of some kind, right? If we can't really get good with the arguments and understand the counter arguments that are being thrown at us right now and have been for quite some time that are, I think, precipitating this rise of tyranny, the loss of human freedom, the loss of humanity, the degradation of some of the main pillars of Western civilization and other civilizations, but primarily Western civilization, because it was the first civilization to really not just come up with this idea that you do have an individual mind that can think for itself, you can reason for yourself, and that you have certain controls over your life. Um, but that with that comes individual rights that cannot be taken from you. This is what we call God-given rights. Well, whatever source you derive of where your rights come from, the idea is that you do have the ability to live your life under your own direction. Or even if you want to say you're under the direction of a higher power or what source consciousness or God or whatever, that you have the freedom to believe those things. You have the freedom to act on those beliefs that you have the freedom to create the life that you want for yourself. Um, but if, if they come in with all these arguments that say, well, that's just an illusion. You don't possess a mind of your own. <clears throat> you don't have free will. You don't even have the potential for free will. Then freedom as a notion, as a concept, when we talk about political, social, they can just throw it out and they can justify a totalitarian state. And they say as much, but... And they have their little arguments about it. This, this is a huge subject, guys. I've been looking at this for years. I've watched debates on this for years. I've read on this for years. I've just been doing a lot of research on this recently because we've been covering this on the Unslaved podcast. And we're going to be doing a show. I just got an email from Michael. We were going to do something on um, art next week on Unslaved. We just did a really great one on the shamanistic fraud and some of the stuff going on with that. But in that show, even last this one we just released this week, we were talking about some questions that were sent in by unslaved members that were wanting to get some more clarification on this idea of materialism versus idealism. Idealism being uh, a counter philosophy uh, that to materialism. One one of them. There's many, but that's one of them. The German idealists. So people are really interested on unslaved on this subject. So Michael swapped it, and next week we're going to be doing a whole thing on this di exact discussion. So <clears throat> I've been thinking about it a lot. I can't wait to do that show with Michael and see where he wants to go with it. But this is uh, where I want to do this show today with you is just kind of give you some of my thoughts on it. I'm going to, I got a lot of video clips we're going to be playing. I have some quotes we're going to read, some papers we're going to read, some things we're going to look at. I'd love to get your feedback in the chat. I'm going to do my very best to pay attention to it. So welcome wherever you are in the world to uh, watching this show. I really appreciate you being here. And before we dive into the meat of this subject, guys, I just want to say thank you to everybody for continuing to support this show uh, over the years, or even if you're new, welcome. Here, we're trying to think differently. We're trying to look at things from different lenses. And in the end, you know, I've got my own opinions and my own biases, but I invite you to make up your own mind because... Unlike many of the people we're going to be looking at today, I do believe that you possess at least a degree of um, free will and volitional consciousness. And I'm going to get into the definitions and break it down as to what I think. But in the end, you have to decide for yourself, which is a faculty of reason and 
a faculty of your ability to decide for yourself if you believe if your thought and your belief on this is determined by your genetics or by antecedent forces, or if you can be persuaded and you can have the ability to really focus your mind and think through and uh, analyze the information you're going to hear and the ideas that you're going to hear and then come to your own determination about it. And then later on the road, maybe even change that determination. So we're going to get into all this stuff, but I just want to say thank you to everybody for being here, supporting this show. Please do me a solid. I am not on uh, many of the mainstream channels. I'm not on YouTube. I do have a YouTube channel, but I mostly use it to advertise for my Rumble, my Rockfin, my DLive, and all the censorship-free platforms. Um, but in that world, the algorithms are horrible, and it's hard for people like me to get the word out as far and wide as I think it deserves and as far and wide as I think it could so we can keep these conversations going. So if you could do me a solid and please... If you like this content, um, please like the video on Rumble or Rockfin or wherever you're watching this. Please add a comment um, and please share. If you could do those things, that would be absolutely amazing. It really, really helps to make sure that I'm able to get this show out there and reach more people. And one thing I want to just quickly mention before we continue, let me just pull it up here for you. Um, I just want to show you what I've been busy doing. <clears throat> so this is going to be my main um, sponsor. I'm going to be sponsoring myself moving forward on Truth Warrior. And it's the work that I do on Truth Warrior Premium. And I've got quite the archive already there. Uh, you can basically jump in and become a member of my private collection of research. Again, just bringing you ideas pulling books off the shelf that I've collected for years, trying to add context, trying to remix different thoughts and ideas and various thinkers in ways that you've probably never seen before, just to keep things fresh and to give you new perspectives. And just want to give you a little gander of what we've been looking at here. And let's start at the beginning. Uh, started with a series getting into biblical study and theology from an esoteric point of view and a point of view you may not have ever heard before. Did a series called The Bible Decoded. Children of Light, Kingdom of Heaven, Kingdom of Hell, um, put a lot of work, a lot of hours into those, and I, I'm getting really good feedback. So if you'd like a fresh perspective on that, uh, I think that's a good series. Then we got into the dark side of Tibetan Buddhism. I'm going to be doing more on this in the future, and uh, I'm just going to leave that there. It's quite a curious title, I know, but go check it out. What do you What do you think about it? Then we dive into the extraterrestrial question. I kind of do a presentation on some of my research on this. There's just a, that's a big one, uh, but we get into that. We do cosmic superimposition, which is an investigation to the nature of reality, the relationship between the micro macro and the hermetic law of correspondence. And we look at a unique blend of three genius thinkers on the subject, Wilhelm Reich, Walter Russell, and Nikola Tesla. And when you put those guys together, guys, there's totally nothing but mind explosions that happen. Uh, I had a, I posted a unique presentation on the cult of the medics. It's got some videos in there as well. Uh, that's the series that I've been working on. You can go check it out at cultofthemedics.com. And yes, I know it's been a while since I've uploaded a chapter, but my life has been incredibly busy as of late. And so uh, chapter 10 is forthcoming. I'll have more updates on that down the road. One more recent ones, the lost light and interpretation of ancient scriptures. This was uh, taking a look at the work of the great Alva Boyd Kuhn, 
a man most people have never heard of, but uh, you're definitely going to want to check him out after that presentation. And then my very most recent, the two-part series that I put a lot of work into and was a lot of fun to compile. And now that I'm looking back on it, I realize I've only given a fraction of the research to it, but I figured it was good enough. We did four and a half hours on this in two parts. It's called The Occult Conspiracy. And I'm asking the question, is there really an evil and occult world conspiracy operating behind the scenes of modern politics, religion, and big business that's involved that's involving ancient cults and secret societies? <laughs> what a question. If so, to what end? And could this possibly help explain the current state of our world today? Let's investigate and find out. So just to give you a little idea of kind of the work that I do to help support uh, my channel, my show, and your support is greatly needed and also um, very much, I'm very much grateful for it, every single one of you, and uh, especially those that take the time to email and send in questions and whatnot. So if you'd like to check that out and become a member, um, I upload new content on a fairly regular basis over there. And you can get it at dwtruthware.com forward slash premium. And it's another, it's just a great way to help support this show if that's what you want to do. So that being said, let's get into our subject today. And uh, before we do it, let me just really quickly check out here to see Amy Lynn. Hi, David. We will have to change the subscriptions. I'm on Ko-Fi. No, you do not. Oh, that's a good question. Let me explain how that works. So for Truth Warrior Premium, I basically just gave you guys an option. Um, the best platform to watch the premium content on is my Rockfin channel. That requires you to subscribe to Rockfin Premium, which is a little bit more. Uh, what's the price right now? I'm not really sure. Uh, let me pull it up here. Yeah, I've got it all listed there. They're a bit more expensive because what happens when you sign up to Rockfin Premium is you get all of my premium content organized in playlists and everything. It gives me a lot more features on there. Um, but you also get every other Rockfin content creator, their premium as well. So they got stuff on all the subjects I cover. There's other guys on there. Jason Burmis is on there. Tinfoil Hat. There's all these guys on there. And then there's um, also a lot of stuff on like martial arts and fitness and they got a wide variety of content on Rockfin. It's a great, great platform. So that would be a little bit more pricey. Um, if you want to save some money and just only get access to Truth Warrior Premium, that's when you would sign up through the Ko-Fi. That's just one of the websites that kind of made things easy for me to set up. And that's only at six bucks a month. So it's about half the price of Rockfin Premium. Uh, so you basically have the choice as do you want to just get my content or you want to get everybody else's as well. And again, uh, Rockfin allows me to help organize everything. So I've organized all these premiums because some of them are multi-part, right? Like the Bible Decoded series is multiple parts, uh, Occult Conspiracies, multiple parts. So I've organized it into playlists on Rockfin. They call them stacks, same thing. And it's just easier to find and easier to go through. And the cool thing about Actually, I think it's the same on Ko-Fi where if say you're watching and you couldn't watch the whole thing, it remembers the spot you left off at. Uh, I, I believe Vimeo does it as well because Vimeo is the player that powers the Ko-Fi version of this. So just letting you know you've got options and that's why I did it like that. Okay, so thanks for that question. Okay, so where are we at now? We are into the discussion of free will and determinism and I thought... 
there'd be no one better to introduce this subject and the inspiration for me doing this podcast than WEF guru, Yoel Harari. So let's see what he's going to say and then we'll take it apart. But some gov governments and corporations for the first time in history have the power to basically hack human beings. There is a lot of talk about hacking computers, hacking smartphones, hacking bank accounts. But the big story of our era is the ability to hack human beings. And by this, I mean that if you have enough data and you have enough computing power, you can understand people better than they understand themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you can manipulate them in ways which were previously impossible. Mm -hmm. And in such a situation, the old democratic system stopped functioning. We need to reinvent democracy for this new era in which humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket this is my free will, that's over. We need to come to terms with the fact that, you know what, again, it, this is where philosophy meets computer science and biology. Oh my God, holding myself back to not jump in every two seconds on that one. Um, well, he's laid out the case that has really been presented by many uh, people of his ilk for a long time, actually centuries, except now it's a remix with a new aspect that was missing, say, in ancient Greece or some of these other periods of time, even um, you know in the 20th century or whatever, when these philosophers were all having these discussions. It's technology that has changed a lot of things. And um, these types of people are under the belief system that because of what we're learning with technology, and now we've developed a new language that has sort of been added to the human lexicon when we're talking about these things of technological language, right? Always comparing us and reality and nature to computers and all these things, right? Which is what are always simulations. It's this, it's that. Um, that came online because we suddenly started interacting with technology. And now that we have technology at this certain point in development where we have the rise of artificial intelligence, and there's some very impressive demonstrations of artificial intelligence now, and there's many, actually, I think there's many benefits to artificial intelligence. I don't like the, the way it's described, the way it's glorified by these materialists, but uh, there's also some downsides to it. And there's What's happened is as much as science, and we'll put science in quotes here, uh, science as it, 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 the establishment of science, the trend of science now, the basic philosophy underpinning modern scientific theory, like we're not talking scientific method. We're not talking about what science is independent of that. I'm talking about what has been called scientism, which as much as they like to say there is no scientism, there is no belief in science, you're thinking of the scientific method. So in that, we agree. What, what I'm talking about is what people like Rupert Sheldrake are talking about or Owen Barfield are talking about or, um, man, so many other guys we're going to get into. They're talking about how science has started to adopt certain philosophical and ideological principles at the base that 
is what is underpinning the worldview of science now, which is determinism, materialism. There is no soul. Basically, everything you all have already just said. He's just echoing what's happening in the echo chamber of modern science. This, again, does not mean the scientific method. In fact, if they use the scientific method, uh, this is where we can have some very interesting discussions, and we will be on this show. So he's saying humans are hackable animals. Well, he's talking about the nanotech, CRISPR, the gene editing, the ability to also hack your mind and your thinking patterns with propaganda. So what I'm thinking here, as I'm hearing them talk about this, and we're going to get into some Sam Harris in a little bit too, to get him to really just give his case on it, and then we'll start refuting it or, or giving you at least the rebuttals to it. Um, and I'm just going to have that prepped here. Give me one sec. Let's prep that. Get that ready to go. Um, the way I'm sort of thinking about this is that just in a basic sense, and I'll flesh this out a bit more as we go. There's what I've been calling the default settings of the human being. Like what you come into, the default settings are in many ways, especially when you're young and you're formulating your worldview and you're developing your mind and your reason and you're developing a self as what we call a self in philosophy, um, an identity. You could argue that if you are not acting in any way in a volitional sense, volitional meaning free sense, you have freedom to act. You have a freedom to make a choice, okay? Before the act of choice, before you realize that you have choice and before you actually make a choice, and you're making tons of choices all the time, I believe, as opposed to just the cause and effect, uh, pure cause and effect theory that they're going to espouse. And we'll get into taking that apart as well. But you have, if you're not making any choices yet, you're very young, you're very um, ignorant to the world at this point, you're, you're still growing up. You could say a lot of your thinking, a lot of your choices are a product of your environment. They're a product of the influence of your parents, your school teachers, your Sunday school teachers, the friends you have around you, the environment that you live in the socioeconomic environment, you can make all these sort of environment arguments that can be very persuasive, right? And in many cases, there's many true aspects to that. And you've got your default settings. So you have all the equipment. I believe you all have, we, we have the equipment in our mental capacity as thinking rational beings to develop free will, to express free will, to turn our consciousness brighter and to focus our minds and to actually activate the superpower that we have to actually direct many aspects of our lives. But that that's a skill. That's something that is, you need to sort of turn on. It's not turned on when you get the package in the mail of the human being, right? So to speak, there's the default settings. If left unattended, it's going to only go to a certain level of consciousness and awareness. And that awareness and consciousness will be mostly programmed by the world around that person, by the influence of the world. And I mean the world of people, the world of ideas. You're born in the Middle East under the caliphate. You're going to be coming out with a totally different worldview than when you're born in California, you know, uh, or you're born in some other part of the world, in China, right? But 
this is where it gets interesting because you don't just have to stay there in that default settings mode. And there's many examples of people that invented amazing things and have thought amazing thoughts and done amazing things and art and music and all kinds of examples we can get into where these people ascended above the sort of primitive state, the animalistic state of the default settings package of the human being. And they somehow ascended that staircase and activated a will of some kind. And then through the activation of that will, whether they believed it was their personal will or the will of God or the will of the universe or whatever, doesn't really matter. They, they somehow connected with a will to cause things to happen in their life that changed the world forever that they applied themselves and it's almost like they turned on other settings in a way. I'm just, I hope this is making sense, but it's just sort of a way that I sort of think about it in a basic way that you got your default settings. And then there's these additional settings that you can switch on by way of focusing your mind and working with it. It's kind of like in martial arts. I see it all the time. You have somebody coming in that has all the potential to perform the martial art and to execute it perfectly and to master it over time. You have all the set, but they haven't gotten there yet. They didn't walk in a black belt. They walked in a white belt. Like I just had a young man. This is a great story. Come in my school a couple of days ago. And he was, uh, I think he's what, maybe 10, 11 years old. And, uh, you know, he's, just immediately upon seeing him, he was like a frightened deer coming in. Like, oh my God, I'm here for my jujitsu class. Uh, first time, never done anything. You know, the poor kid was like a deer in headlights. Um, he was, you know, a bit chubby and didn't look athletic. Uh, he kind of had the Coke bottle glasses on, you know, just, I was just wearing a t-shirt and jeans, you know, I was kind of, he wasn't ready for the class. And immediately I looked at him and I memorized his name when he told me. And in my head, I just went, my job is to show this kid what his potential is. My job is to get this kid excited about training martial arts with me because these are the kind of kids, these are the kind of people I like to work with. Is the people that you can see it in their eyes. They have zero self-confidence. They're terrified. But he, he activated his will enough to show up even though he was frightened of coming in and trying it out we played a whole bunch of i, I teach the kids uh i teach very conceptually and we play a lot of games we do jujitsu games and so the whole class was games one game after the other and each game is designed to teach them a different skill but they're having a blast doing it they're getting a great workout doing it it's very live it's very interactive it's very hands-on and kids love that stuff and right away he was having trouble he because my whole class was full of like yellow belts and orange belts right for the for his age group that day and these are all kids that have been trained with me for a bit and they kind of know the system and uh so i put him with a guy and he's doing some of these drills and he's you know having trouble and he's kind of losing his balance and whatnot and then eventually he starts figuring it out because i created the game to allow you to have multiple opportunities to keep trying the same things over and over again to try to develop the skill and eventually he started developing it, started seeing some success, started sweeping his partner, started doing stuff. His face lit up in a way that I 
this is what I live for. This is why I teach martial arts, especially to, to young kids is because I love to see the switch in their eyes, the change in their face that he's like, oh my God, I just did something that I didn't think I could do. And it was on his first day. And he was working. The, the great thing about this kid was he was working his butt off. He had a work ethic in him. And so after I walked up to him, like, how was that? He's like, that was awesome. And I'm like, yes, I got you, man. We're here. We're doing this. I want to see you next class. He's like, I'm going to be here. So I just lit a flame in this kid using jujitsu as an art, using some games that we play in the class to introduce an idea in this kid's mind that maybe wasn't there before that he can change his circumstances. He can change his where he is right now and he can make himself better. He can improve himself and not from a place of saying you're not good enough, but just from a place of everybody needs a vehicle of expression and uh, of a challenge of some kind that they can use to activate those other layers of different settings that I think you would never realize you have unless you were put up against a wall like that. And I feel like martial arts is the ultimate expression in many ways of the activation of your will. It takes you, it takes willpower to get up and go and do some pretty grueling training classes, uh, to take a lot of licks, to get embarrassed, to make mistakes over and over again, only to watch progress happen over time where you suddenly don't make those mistakes anymore. You're changing your destiny. You're changing your fate, your determined state by simply brightening your mind, applying your will, making good choices, learning how to make better choices, improving over time, witness yourself improving over time, enhancing your view of yourself, and then learning, man, if I can master this very complicated martial art, and if I can empower myself and gain the strength and fortitude that I did from this art and from the process of training the art, I can apply that new skill to other areas of my life. And how long do you think this kid or any of the others are going to be coming out living in any level of victim mentality? Zero. That's the answer. Zero. I've seen it. They don't come out like that. If they come in like that, they don't come out like that after a period of time because you prove it to them. They prove it to themselves. I can only say, here's how we do it. Here's some ideas. Here's some concepts. They have to put the manual work into not sitting on the side of the mat saying, I'm too tired. I'm too lazy. I don't like doing this. I don't want to do this because I definitely get those kids and they don't really go very far. They don't last very long. And they never get to achieve the sense of accomplishment that someone that says, no, I'm going to push through it. I'm going to train hard. I'm going to work hard. I see others that are examples of people that have done it before. If they can do it, I can do it. And I'm just never going to give up on myself. Which kid walks out as a victim? Which kid walks out as a victor? Right there, right? So I'm bringing that up as just, I know it's not the be all and end all argument for this case against uh, free will or for free will, but it's just an opener. Now let's get into Sam Harris's thoughts here for a bit. I will uh, let this play for a few minutes. It's a longer video, but he's, it's just someone made a little video of him summarizing his argument against free will. You've probably heard some of this before. Um, let me know in the chat if this sounds familiar.
the illusoriness of free will is as certain a fact as the truth of evolution. And unlike evolution, understanding this truth about the human mind has the potential to change our, our sense of moral goodness and what it would mean to, to create a just society. The question of free will touches nearly everything people care about. Religion, public policy, politics, the, the legal system, feelings of personal accomplishment, emotions like guilt and pride and remorse. So much of, of, of human life seems to depend on our viewing one another as conscious agents capable of free choice. So if the scientific community were ever to declare free will an illusion, as I think we eventually must, I think it would precipitate a culture war far more acrimonious than the one that has been waged on the subject of evolution. Now I hope to do two things in this talk. I hope to convince you that free will is an illusion. It's worse than an illusion, it's, it's actually a, a totally incoherent idea. Uh, which is to say it's impossible to describe a universe in which it could be true. Not only is it untrue, it's, it's, it's hard to make sense of what's even being claimed to be true. And I also hope to convince you that understanding this truth about the human mind actually matters and that it can change the way we view morality and questions of justice. Now, the, the popular conception of free will seems to rest on two assumptions. The first is that each of us was free to behave differently than we did in the past. You chose chocolate, but you could have chosen vanilla. It certainly seems like this is the world we're living in. Now, the second assumption is that we are the conscious source of our thoughts and actions. And this is so that the, your experience of wanting to do something is in fact the proximate cause of your doing that something. You feel that you want to move, and then you move. That you are doing it you the conscious witness of your life. Now unfortunately we, we know that both of these assumptions are just untrue. The first Okay, I, this is what is always interesting to me is the certainty of it, the certainty of the argument. Instead of presenting it as okay, well, you know, this is what's theorized as being the case by way of the new precepts of modern science and what we think we've discovered. It's no, we know this not to be true. We just know it. How do you know it? By what means do you know it? And at some point you must have reviewed what you think to be the evidence that contradicts free will and then made a, dis a, a decision of some kind to decide whether or not you were going to go along with the idea for determinism versus free will. And likewise, the people that say, no, what you guys are discovering with this whole deterministic argument is hogwash, uh, and we are going to go with free will. They have also looked at data and then looked at their environment and introspected a little bit and then said, no, I don't, I don't agree with you, and I'm going to use my will to not agree with you. Right? But then his argument would be, well, no, that person's psychology and the way they view the world was determined long ago by antecedent forces like your genetics and all these other things and on and on it goes. So, um, I'll give him another minute here and then we'll get into it. I, I hope you guys, I didn't want to spend the whole show just playing the entirety of Sam Harris's argument on it. And I don't want to be someone that's like straw manning his argument in any way. Uh, so I do encourage you go watch some of his talks on it. He's done some podcasts on it. Um, it's definitely out there. Hear him out, hear the arguments, look at the literature, look at the data. But what I'm going to present to you today is also the refuters to this whole 
notion that he's trying to espouse here to show there is no grounds for such confidence in those statements. At the very least, we can still have the debate. It's still open-ended. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Okay, let's leave room for alternate theories here. But this is where I start to go, oh, you, you know it for sure, do you? Hmm. And then you got to ask the philosophical question, by what means do you know, Sam? What capacity are you using? What tool are you using at your disposal to make that judgment that you know for certain? Just an idea, just a question. First problem is that we live in a world of cause and effect. And there's no way of, of, of thinking about cause and effect that allows us to say that the buck stops here. The, the buck never stops. Either our wills are determined by prior causes, a long chain of prior causes, and we're not responsible for them, or they're the product of chance, and we're not responsible for them, or there's some combination of chance and determinism. But no combination seems to give you the free will that people cherish. Notice the phrase, and we're not responsible for them. See, what I try to do sometimes is um, think about maybe the motivations as to why I believe in free will, why I've made the choice to believe that I have free will, and that the idea of freedom and individual liberty and all of that should be maintained. Um, what motivates me to want to believe that? And then likewise, what motivates someone like Sam Harris or any of you watching right now that think on that same line as he's illustrating? What motivates you to want to believe that doctrine? And maybe this is a straw man. I don't know. But one thing that I've noticed when I hear the proponents of determinism discuss their view is there's also the discussion about crime and punishment that comes into the mix, right? Like, should we punish criminals? Because if they're determined to be what they are, Maybe they're not so bad after all. I don't know. Maybe that's a straw man. I don't know. But that's just sort of the vibe you get, right? Or maybe we should look at a different way of dealing with them or whatever, which, hey, I'm a totally, there's definitely a lot of problems with the prison system and the legal system, okay? Everything I'm going to bring up is a tangled web of, uh, you have to use a lot of argumentation to get through it all. But trying to just stay on the main point here, what if this all just boils down to the discussion about personal responsibility versus collective responsibility? So this is individualism and collectivism again. And what if there are people who don't want to believe that they are beholden to some standard of conduct where they have to be responsible for their actions or their inactions? And what philosophy would assist people that are maybe sociopathic or psychopathic or narcissistic or power hungry maniacs or whatever that some of the people we look at in this show that have risen to power in, in the world, <laughs> clearly, uh, what philosophy would benefit them? The philosophy of personal responsibility, individual freedom, the fact that you have a volitional free consciousness to make choices or to, to select from different choices and act upon those to ignore other choices, the, that you, you know, don't have the, you have the ability to either clear your mind and focus your mind and use your mind or to not use it. That that's the first act of choice that you have with your free will package, that there's that with that 
type of philosophy and worldview help a Justin Trudeau in his life and justify would that would or would that threaten somebody like that or a Fidel Castro or a Mao Zedong or any or any of the cult leaders that I've exposed or any of the serial killers that we could look at or whatever and even though we could make arguments that those different people the crime the criminals the 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 predators amongst us from ancient times to modern times what philosophy gives them refuge and what philosophy exposes them and demands more from them and demands scrutiny on what they're doing and, and actually says, no, it, like, let's look at this whole thing with the whole discussion about pedophilia. Isn't this where this woke mob is headed now with the way they're espousing their ideology? Like what is exactly being taught in the universities that are framing the psychology of these young impressionable minds, bringing them up through these institutions, and then they're coming out with these radical ideas? What is underpinning that? There's philosophies and ideas that are not invented in the modern time that are being taught and just regurgitated in different ways in this cultural Marxism or whatever you want to call it, right? So, and of course, what are they proponents of these kids coming out of uni these universities or these academic institutions? They're proponents of a world state. They're proponents of less individual freedom. They're against private property ownership they're against the notion of a nuclear family they're, they're you know how we always look at this all these discussions and we kind of go it seems like the people that were telling you to get 85 vaccines or you're a nazi and the people that are telling you you know why are you driving around in your truck you're polluting the environment and we need to pay more carbon taxes to bill gates and the government in order to save the world like there's certain things there's certain ideas that people are all gathering onto and we don't stop to think that there's actually a worldview a premise that's at the base of why half the population is going in one direction with these arguments and the other half is going the other way just to keep it simple and i think that's where we get down to basically the the think of it like back to hobbes and rousseau think of it you know the, the discussion in politics, Plato and Aristotle, the, the conservatism versus liberalism, uh, collectivism versus individualism, you know, all these different things. I think they're all just echoes and signatures of this philosophical or what you could call metaphysical package that people jump onto and make decisions as to whether they're going to go one way or the other. So, and again, there's shades of gray everywhere. I'm just trying to keep it as general as possible here. Um, because I don't, I'm not a collectivist. I don't view people as just being, um, of the, you know, I'm, I guess with the default settings can kick in and you can become a collectivized mind and you can believe you're thinking on your own when really you're just repeating memorized statutes from whatever, uh, ideology you're describing to subscribing to, but uh, I still look at humanity as the potential for developing and possessing this thing we call free will, which comes with personal responsibility. Whereas the other philosophy that says there is no free will, all of your actions are predetermined by other forces than you. This completely uproots any level of personal responsibility just on a philosophical basis. And it can justify this ch radical change in our culture where now you have people who predate on children 
which is what I see pedophilia as being. That's just my opinion. I don't see it as, I'm almost like that's secondary. An adult male, for example, that is going to seek out um, the, the ability to manipulate and coax and talk a young impressionable child into engaging in sexual activity with this adult person. I'm not going to sit back and go, well, this guy is just a collection of predetermined antecedental forces, his upbringing, his family, and therefore we shouldn't stop it from happening. We should maybe encourage it. We should maybe not uh, uh, lock these people up and charge them for the sake of protecting children from these types of people. We leave the discussion about children out of it and we focus on the person that has that particular condition or worldview or whatever. And I want to get to the root of what causes things like pedophilia and all these other things. I want to get to the root of it. And there are many places we can go to. We can go to psychology. We can go to philosophy. We can go to theology. We can go to a lot of different things to try to get to, well, what is causing this thing? Um, Because the rights of that child are not being discussed. It's the rights of the perpetrator because they are a victim to their deterministic life. So that philosophy kind of gives that side of the argument more credence, whereas the philosophy of the fact that you have free will comes with the personal responsibility thing. It means you are responsible for your actions in this life and that we demand better conduct. Uh, if you're otherwise we if we see you're doing harm to others, then that's what we consider to be a criminal or somebody that is a, a predator that needs to be dealt with because if you're just harming other people, um, and you're just going to keep blaming it on determinism and genetics and your upbringing, then there's no end to the cascade of criminality that we could invite into our gates. At least that's just one way of thinking of it. And I know there's people out there that are determinists and materialists that are screaming at me right now because they're thinking I'm putting them in that same basket. I know there's nuance. I know there's differences. I know there's counter arguments and everything, but when I'm speaking in general, when I'm looking at the zeitgeist of our time in the social world, and when I'm seeing governments move more towards totalitarian methods of dealing with their populations, which is not how we used, that's not how we founded our civilization here in the West. When we see that being broken and we see an attack against the the ideas of freedom and liberty and property and all of that coming under attack within our own gates, You have to understand it's not just these radicals out there. It's coming from the scientific world and the, some of these popular people who espouse this idea and they're influencing the culture. And I think it's a really attractive theory to put out there, especially when you put it out without the other side of the argument, right? You put it out there and you say, okay, well, uh, all bets are off now because free will doesn't exist. It's an illusion. Well, if free will is an illusion, then there's no such thing as good and evil, is there? There's no such thing as malevolent and benevolent. There's no real duality anymore on that front. And then you bring in the non-dualism from the Eastern schools, is what I got into in the dark side of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, is what we got into on the dark side of some of these shamanic practices that are leaking in to the New Age movement and Western culture. On the We got that on that unslaved podcast I was telling you about. Um, we're looking at the threats that are going to uproot the very foundation of freedom in the West. And it starts with 
this debate. It starts with this discussion because if these intellectual types can keep pumping this out and then it gets into the schools with all the other critical race theory, with all the other stuff that we're seeing, it's a package. It's a package deal that then installs a belief system in the minds of these young kids and in our culture that then takes us away from the foundations of having freedom. Because if you don't have free will, how could you have freedom? This argument, bottom line, favors totalitarians. Determine it. It's the argument of all of them. If you read a book called uh, The Psychotic Left by Kerry Bolton, he gets into analyzing the dark side of left-wing politics and the history of it and the history of some of these totalitarians that came from that ideology. Um, and he's not talking about a classical liberal sense either. He's talking about the current, what we're seeing now, this radicalized version of it. You'll start to see that that idea is woven right into the fabric of the script of these totalitarians. If you get into the study I've done on these different cults and these cult leaders that led into mass suicide, ritual suicide, ritual murders, some of the more extreme things that can manifest, uh, you'll hear the same kind of refrain. They will look at it in, in those cults and those in the religious minded people that advocate for determinism. They'll advocate it as determinism from some deity, right? But what's the difference between that extreme religious ideology that says, oh, it's, it's determined by a deity. You, you don't have free will. It's all done by the gods or the stars or whatever. It's all determined uh, for you. What's the difference between that and what Sam Harris and these guys in materialist camp are saying? They're just replacing a deity with a mechanistic universe and the theory of evolution and macroevolution. Uh, but it's the same arguments. It's an argument against a volitional mind. So I'm not going to keep playing this video with Sam Harris. Uh, go look it up and watch it through. And again, make your own free will decision on whether what you agree with. Um, but let me now start getting into what I really want to show you, because I know a lot of you guys are already up to speed on this stuff, which is we're going to do some counters to this. So, you know, I'm going to switch to this view, I think. Yeah. Before I play the video, I'm going to be getting into the work of Nathaniel Brandon here. Because in my opinion, there have been many great arguments against determinism. Okay. Many great ones for, for thousands of years, actually. But he really crystallized it in a way that for me, it made more sense. It made sense of what the other side was saying, and it made sense of what the counters to it are. That's just me. And he did a lecture in 1968. He did a series of lectures, and some of them are just incredible. I've been listening to them a lot. They're just so good in many, many ways. And so I've got some clips from this one that he does on free will. But before I play it, uh, I'm going to just read you a bit of an excerpt from a different presentation that he had done. I've read this before a couple of years ago, but um, I just want to go through it as quick as possible. And then I'll let Nathaniel Brandon kind of add more to it. But this is key. You're going to need, and I'm going to tell you all this, guys, the reason this is relevant is because, and the reason I called this to think or not to think, you'll get understanding as we go, is that think about the world we live in right now and how many people are choosing not to think. 
that to think or not to think itself, that question is already starting to fire some arrows at determinism because you get to choose whether to activate the faculty of logic and reason and thought. You get to choose. And we witnessed it, didn't we? Aren't we still witnessing it? Isn't the evidence right in front of our face of the people that you're talking to that the minute you pin them down, and I've been doing this for a long time, when they say, you got to wear two masks alone in your car or whatever, <laughs> you go, okay, wh why? Who said that? Well, Bonnie Henry said it, or the, the science said it. So you see, you're still... In the materialist world, they're like, well, let's get rid of any kind of deity or God, okay, or or, or soul, or it's just all mechanism, materialistic universe, and um, it's all predetermined. There's antecedent forces predetermining it. It's the explosion of the Big Bang that's just constantly unfolding, and you can't stop any of that, and so that's what human consciousness is attached to, and so therefore it can't be determined or whatever they're saying. Um, we had people that went along with another dogma that said the science. And that's what all these guys are going to say. Oh, we, I, we did a study over here. We did a study over here. That's the science. That's our collection of science. Even though you could look at other studies that contradict it, which we will, which means it's not the science after all. It's just, well, some science has been done to show uh, a pro for your case. And some science has been done to show a con for your case. So this still leaves us in a, this scenario where we all have to look at both data and then make a decision as to what we're going to do. Right. Um, but they put the science up as the gods of the modern world, Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, the intellectual elite, like Rockefeller laid out, right? We are the gods, the transhumanists. We're going to remake man and this earth in our image after our likeness. We're going to correct nature's flaws. We're going to make it better. We're going to create synthetic universes and synthetic online experiences that are going to be way better than real world experiences. And all of it's deterministic. And even this move towards transhumanism and a world government and central control, uh, that's deterministic as well. As is all of history, nothing is caused to happen. It's just, it's deterministic. Well, let's take it apart. So Nathaniel Brannon says this. Psychological determinism denies the existence of freedom or volition in human consciousness. So just, there's the basic description. It holds that every desire, action, and thought is determined by forces beyond our control. It holds that in relation to our actions, decisions, values, and conclusions, man is ultimately and essentially passive. That human beings are essentially a reactor to internal and external pressures. Those pressures determine the course of our actions and the content of our convictions. Just as physical forces determine the cause or the course of every particle of dust in the universe, it holds that in any given situation or moment, only one's choice or one choice is psychologically possible to us. The inevitable result of all the antecedent forces infringing upon us, just as only one action is possible to the speck of dust. Determinism holds that humans have no actual power of choice, no actual freedom or self-responsibility. According to this view, we have no more actual volition than a stone. We are merely confronted with more complex alternatives and are manipulated by more complex forces. The deterministic concept of mind entails a crucial contradiction, specifically an epistemological contradiction. It is and can be shown to be upon analysis, a self-refuting or self-invalidating theory, 
a contradiction in any variety of determinism, and there are many, whether the alleged determining forces be physical, psychological, environmental, or divine, it wouldn't matter if you hold that man is determined by the gods, or his genes, or his upbringing, or his socioeconomic environment, or his background, or position. This contradiction that he's going to point to is common to all of them. Consider the following. The determinist concept of mind maintains that whether a man thinks or not, whether he takes cognizance of the facts of reality or not, whether he holds facts above his feelings or feelings above the facts or not, all are determined by forces outside of his control. In any given moment or situation, his method of mental functioning is the inevitable product of an endless chain of antecedent forces. He has no choice in the matter. That which a man does declare the advocates of determinism, he had to do. That which he believes, he had to believe. If he focuses his mind, he had to. If he evades the effort of focusing, he had to. If he is guided solely by reason, he had to be. If he is ruled instead by feeling or whim, he had to be. He couldn't help it. No one can help anything, they say. Such is the determinist thesis. But here we go. If this were true, no knowledge would be possible to man, as shall be shown. So no theory could claim greater plausibility than any other, including the theory of psychological determinism. Why? It is most essential to understand this issue. First of all, remember that man is neither omniscient nor infallible. This means, A, that he must work to achieve his knowledge. <laughs> you know, working to achieving knowledge is not really most people's pastime, but it's essential, he's saying. And B, that the mere presence of an idea inside his mind does not prove that the idea is true. How many ideas you get in your head that you look back and go, yeah, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> How do you even have the capacity to do that? But if a man believes what he has to believe, if he is not free to test his beliefs against reality and to validate or reject them, if the actions and content of his mind are determined by factors that may or may not have anything to do with reason, logic, and reality, then he can never know if his conclusions are true or false. Knowledge is the correct identification of the facts of reality. And in order for man to know that the contents of his mind constitute knowledge, in order for him to know that he has identified the facts of reality correctly, he requires a means of testing his conclusions. That's what my dojo is. That's what we do there. It's a lab where we, we test our conclusions and we reject the false and promote the true and the real and the effective version of it, right? The means is the process of reasoning and the testing his conclusions against reality and checking for contradictions. Sorry, I got to read that again. The means is the process of reasoning and of testing his conclusions against reality and checking for contradictions, which is what we should be doing and what a lot of people were not doing over the past three years. I'm sure you'll agree. It is thus that he validates his conclusions. This validation is possible only if his capacity to judge is free. That is, non-conditional given a normal brain state. But if his capacity to judge is not free, there is no way for man to discriminate between his beliefs and those of a raving lunatic. So guys, how do you know if your beliefs and your worldview and your ideas are actually grounded in reality or whether they're just absolute nonsense? 
How can you even formulate the question in your mind if there's no such thing as volition? So they can only report that they feel helpless to believe otherwise, nor can they claim that their theory is highly probable. They can only acknowledge the inner compulsion that forbids them to doubt that it is highly probable. Some advocates of determinism evidently sensed this ep epistemological dilemma and have sought to escape it by asserting that although they are determined to believe what they believe, the factor determining them is logic. But by what means do they know this? That's what I was trying to ask that to Sam Harris. By what means do you know this, right? Their beliefs are no more subject to their control than a lunatic's beliefs. They and the lunatic are equally the pawn of deterministic forces, aren't they? Both are incapable of judging their judgments. So here's an interesting note. One of the defining characteristics of psychosis, which is most likely plaguing uh, some people who shall not be named at this time, one of the defining characteristics of psychosis is, quote, loss of volitional control over rational judgment. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever seen that running around in the world, people that have loss of volitional control over rational judgment? You got these people that are all these, you go downtown, you see some of these homeless people or other people running around high as kites on some really hard drugs, shouting at the sky, taking dumps out in the middle of the street, acting very animalistic and primitive. And you start to go, what's up with these people? Like, that's what my cat would do. Like, why are they acting like this? The reason you even have that question is because you know that humans, most humans around you don't act that way. So something has changed the settings of the brain, of the mind of the person that's acting that way, like a raving lunatic. But just because the settings have been changed by the drug or the whatever it is that drove them mad, drove them to madness, um, you see plenty. That's not the standard in the world. There's that person shouting at the sky, and then there's people that are walking around having normal interactions and not taking dumps out in the street and doing these kinds of crazy things, right? Utter, you know, stuttering to themselves. And it, there's there's different modes of consciousness, right? And it's the settings that can be adjusted. But every act, there was still a choice at some time. You could say, oh, that druggie was determined to become that because maybe his father was a druggie. Maybe his, he was abused as a child, maybe whatever, all the excuses, right? And you go, yeah, but at some, every stage of the way, there was a choice that was made. That first time he was offered those drugs, he had that choice. Do I want to go down this path and try to ease my suffering by distracting myself with these drugs right now? Or do I want to embrace the grind, get away from that and go make something of myself? There was a choice that was made every step of the way. Even if the choices are motivated by trauma, even if there's that's a factor, there's still many people that didn't do that, that did go through hell. I know many of them. I'll bet you many of you did too in your life. And you made a decision at some point, maybe even against great temptations, you made a choice not to go down that very self-destructive path. You, you made the choice not to dim your consciousness, not to live a life of hating yourself and living a life of resentment and envy and greed and all these things, the seven deadly sins. You made a choice, at least sometimes, to go in a more positive direction that had a positive outcome in your life. If none of this stuff 
had any positive outcome in your life, we wouldn't even have to have this conversation because it would all be meaningless. What's the goal? To have a positive outcome in your life, to improve your life, to improve your circumstances, to thrive, to grow, and to be free, right? But freedom comes with the responsibility of freedom, right? Which is what I think people are really, that's why they love this theory of determinism because it's the get out of jail free card. That's my opinion. So let's just do it again. One of the defining characteristics of psychosis is loss of volitional control over rational judgment. But according to determinism, that is your natural, normal metaphysical state. There is no escape from determinism's epistemological state. A mind that is not free to test and validate its conclusions. A mind whose judgment is not free can have no way to tell the logical from the illogical. No way to ascertain that which compels and motivates it. No right to claim knowledge of any kind. Such a mind is disqualified for such appraisals by its very nature. The very concept of logic is only possible to a volitional consciousness. An automatic consciousness would have no need of logic and could not even conceive of what logic is. The concepts of logic, thought, and knowledge are not applicable to machines as they are desperate to get you to believe that they are, my friends. A machine does not reason. And that's the difference. It performs the actions its builder sets it to perform and those actions alone. Uh, hello, chat GPT. Just had an article study come out to show that it's got a left wing bias. I thought this was supposed to be an objective artificial intelligence that's just gathering all the data and just spitting it back out. And maybe one day that AI is going to actually achieve volitional consciousness of its own. Actually, even thinking about their argument about the singularity and how AI is going to switch on like Skynet one day and all, they're actually sort of hinting at the fact that AI will suddenly develop intelligence. What is intelligence? The word intelligence itself is implying volition. That would be what, because if, because that's what the pipe dream, isn't it? That chat GBT and the AI algorithms and Klaus Schwab's, you know, dystopian future wet dream is, is all based on the idea or Ray Kurzweil or any of these other guys, all based on the idea that one day it, this is just going to switch on and it's going to be an intelligent being. We're creating an intelligent being with these computer algorithms and these programs. What are they not trying to achieve but free will in the machine? Yet they're all advocates for determinism with the psychology of human beings. Maybe that's why they think that the AI is going to be the god of the modern world because they're going to tell you AI is the only thing that has volition and you don't. Oh, wow. What an amazing argument for the totalitarians of the world to use as a stick to rule your ass. What, what better could you get? than psychological determinism. Oh, except AI. AI is more intelligent than natural intelligence. That's going to be there. That's the, that's where the cult is going. But a mind that is not free to test and validate its conclusions, whose mind and judgment is not free, can in no way tell the logical from the illogical. There, there's no grounds for it. And the very concept of logic and free will is only possible to a volitional consciousness. An automatic consciousness would have no need of it. 
an AI algorithm would have no need of volitional consciousness. It couldn't even conceive of it. It's repeating. It's repeating the program. That's where we're at. The concepts of thought, logic, and knowledge are not applicable to machines. A machine does not reason. It performs the actions its builder sets it to perform in those actions alone. Garbage in, garbage out. If it is set to register that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then it does so. If it is set to register that 2 plus 2 equals 5, it does so. If it's set to be, oh, hey, Siri, uh, tell me about the founding of America. Tell me about Donald Trump. Tell me about Justin Trudeau. Tell me about the truckers, the Canadian truckers. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. Tell me about climate change. Tell me about philosophy. Tell me about free will versus determinism. La, 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 la. What are you talking to? You're talking to a programmed machine. You're talking to Google-like algorithms encapsulated in this entity called Siri or Alexa or whatever. It's been programmed to respond in certain ways. It's just like the media that you're looking on the internet right now is based on what was your past search history. And there's also things being shadow banned from your view on the internet, like this show, for example, and other shows. So that's not an objective um, scientific inquiry into the questions you're asking this artificial intelligence. If there's shadow banning and censorship happening, just like we saw during the pandemic, just like we saw with the vaccine issue, just like we're seeing with climate change, just like we're seeing with all of these things, you're being corralled into believing and your kids are being trained to believe that the information they get from Google, from YouTube, from Facebook, from TikTok, from all these multi-million dollar best-selling authors that are promoted and don't have any algorithmic restrictions on their profiles, who have millions of followers and worshipers, that that is the truth. That is the accurate information. That is the science. And then what are they going to do? Their minds, see the other aspect of this is that yes, your consciousness can be programmed. Your brain, the, the information, the belief structures can be programmed. But that's not proof of determinism. That's actually proof of free will because it means that you are given a, a bunch of options in your belief system. Am I going to be a Christian? Am I going to be a Jew? I'm going to be an atheist. I'm going to be a flat earther. I'm going to be a global. I'm going to be this. I'm going to vote for Trudeau. I'm not. I'm going to vote conservative. No, I'm going with PPC. I, I support Trump. I don't support Trump. I got to get milk. Uh, I don't like drinking milk. I'm lactose. You know, like all these, all these little things are adding up and you're basically being all of your opinions on these things are coming from where you're going to read books. You're going to go on the internet. Well, what if that environment is controlled? What if you're not getting access to all the great thinkers and all the ideas? These kids in school, you say the name Rupert Sheldrake or Walter Russell or anybody to these kids, Nikola Tesla, they don't know who they are. Yet they're believing that they, they're trusting the science. But they don't know who Owen Barfield is. They don't know who these, they don't know who Nathaniel Brandon is. And so they, but they know who Sam Harris is. And then they go Google and they go, oh yeah, no, uh, free will is an illusion because Siri told me that it was because Siri was programmed to tell you that it was who programmed it. Just thinking out loud here. So these machines, it has no power to correct the orders and the information given. That's the difference. This AI stuff, I don't care how impressive it looks. It has 
no power to correct the orders and information given because it's programmed. It does not possess this thing called consciousness that uniquely human beings possess. If the self-correctors are set incorrectly, it cannot correct itself. It cannot make any independent self-generated contribution to its performance. It's an NPC. If man, and trust me, humans can operate like machine consciousness. That's, I think, where misunderstandings happen. Is that if the default settings are there and you make the choice to only develop a belief system and a worldview and a view of yourself and reality through the lens that's been given to you by society, by the world, by the culture or the age that you grew up in and that you live in. And you didn't stop to think for one second for yourself to go, wait a minute, what if all of that is wrong? Or what if there's more to the story? Or what if there's alternative theories? If you don't, if you don't do that ever, then yes, you're going to be one of these people that's just on to the next latest thing that is being dangled like a carrot in front of you by the media, by the, all these different forces in our world right now that are seeking to destroy freedom and destroy the very idea, the very philosophical foundation of freedom and where it came from, which came from the idea of free will. If they can destroy free will, they can take down this entire civilization with the idea that there is no such thing as freedom. And that's exactly what they are doing. That is what they're advocating for. I'm talking about the bigwigs, your guys at the World Economic Forum and the World Government Summit and all of that. Their whole premise is based on this worldview. That's why they don't care. They look at you like a bunch of machines anyways. That's why they can justify mass genocide. That's why they can justify breaking a few eggs to make this omelet that they want to make so badly. Because they don't see you as something that really has any innate individual value of yourself. You're just a little speck controlled by antecedent forces that needs to contribute to the greater whole or otherwise be eliminated. That's the totalitarian mindset in a nutshell. It's the cult leader's mindset. It's the religious fanatic's mindset. It's the scientific Frankensteinian psychopath's mindset. If man, who is clearly not set invariably to be right, and were merely a super complex machine engineered by his heredity and operated by his environment, pushed, pulled, and shaped, and molded by his genes and his toilet training, his parental upbringing, and his cultural history, then no premise reached by him could claim objectivity or truth including the premise that man is merely a machine. So including in that determination, if you were merely an automatic consciousness, you would not be capable of even formulating the premise that man is a merely a machine, that that is their own argument can be easily thrown right back around at them. And that's, one of the better takedowns, I think, of this idea, but we're going to get even deeper on this. Um, let me just quickly check, see if anybody's got any uh, interesting comments or questions in here. Good thing we're hopping on Rumble. Hope everybody's well. 
Most people are NPCs because of years of brainwashing, which makes them think that they have free will. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm not sure if you're meaning that, uh, if you're saying that free will doesn't exist, if you're on that side, or if you're just saying that when someone's operating in that NPC consciousness, they're, they, they haven't turned on the settings of free will. They're not activating their mind and their reason and therefore, they believe that they're making these decisions. I think that's what you're saying. They believe they're making this decision for themselves, all their beliefs, all their worldviews. They think they came up with it. They don't know they got it from the people who read the scripts to the tel and the teleprompters to the public. Um, so they believe they're acting when they're actually not. I believe that's what you're meaning. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's let's get into this first clip. This is from Nathaniel Brandon on free will. It's another lecture that he did, and he just the guy is just a cascade of incredible salient points. So we're going to go through a bunch of them. So uh, let's go right ahead with this. But in order to think, you have to do something. You have to generate effort. You have to focus your minds. You have to choose to set the machinery in motion. You have to choose to seek to understand that which is not immediately given, that which is not self-evident, that which is not inescapably there in your immediate sensory experience, but rather that which you must reach by a process of conceptual reasoning. To quote from Galt's speech, quote, man is a being of volitional consciousness. Reason does not work automatically. Thinking is not a mechanical process. The connections of logic are not made by instinct. The function of your stomach, lungs, or heart is automatic. The function of your mind is not. This is an important point that they're making. And he's talking about John Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged, uh, where they get into this argument. It's basically about this argument. And... It's the idea that you've got automatic functions, just like my cat has automatic functions and the beetle that's over there on the tree or the slugs or the birds or other aspects of nature. There's automatic functions. Your body has those automatic functions as well. You don't have to have this. You don't have to think consciously about how to beat your heart. Your heart beats automatically based on those deterministic forces right? And we can go even bigger. We'll go when we get into Kastrup's idea here. We'll go even bigger than that. But just to keep it simple, you have functions that are automatic. And that the, the thing that differentiates humans from everything else is the fact that your consciousness has the capacity to not be subject to that force of determinism. But that thinking logic reason it's still a new phenomena in the human mind in our development if you get into julian jane's the bicameral mind the history of development of human consciousness and all of that it's very interesting um but that it's something that needs to be switched on and trained and developed so let's let him continue on that thought in any hour and issue of your life you are free to think or to evade that effort but you are not free to escape from your nature, from the fact that reason is your means of survival, so that for you, who are a human being, the question to be or not to be 
is the question to think or not to think. Now, that's an interesting statement. Um, reason being your means of survival. It's different because think about us humans. Like physically, we're quite frail when it comes to the forces of nature. Okay. The reason we are where we are at the apex on the planet, allegedly, um, is that we have the ability to reason for ourselves. And the more we've developed our ability to reason, the more bridges can be built, the more airplanes can be invented, the more internet signals can be developed and understood and put into practice. You know, the more philosophical progress uh, can be made in our thought our, about meaning and all of that, the more art we can produce, the more everything, right? Um, but we have to use our logic and our reason to navigate a very rough terrain in the world. And uh, we're always up against the question of survival. And so our basic tool that we have that differentiates us from everything else is that ability to reason and to think. That is what they mean when they say reason is your primary means of survival. Oh, and then what was he saying there too? Let me just back it up a little bit. Being. The question to be or not to be is the question to think or not to think. Yeah, exactly. To think or not to think. We've had this choice from day one, but let's think of it just in terms of recent history and what we're going through right now. You have the choice to tune in to, I don't know, CBC News and believe everything they're telling you without any other source of information, without questioning it all, without thinking for yourself, you have the choice to go sign up to some Mooney's cult and listen to whatever that cult leader is going to tell you and do all the rites and rituals and, uh, you know, just not think for yourself. You have the, you, you have this ability and you have the right to do it and you have the capacity to do it, which is more interesting, but you also have the capacity to not do those things and to instead look at it objectively, this information you're getting from CBC News or whatever some cult leader is telling you or whatever one of your friends is telling you or whatever on any subject. And you have the ability to say, wait, oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think more on that. I'm going to think more about that. See if it really is what I want to do, if this is right for me. That young student that came into my jiu-jitsu school, he had the ability in that moment to sit there and go, was that a good experience or a bad experience? Do I want to do this again or do I not want to do this again? That's just basic, but just even to, when he's saying to think or not to think, he's speaking philosophically as well. Thinking means a lot more than just, oh, did I pick up those groceries I was supposed to pick up or did I pay that bill? It's beyond that. It's This is about thinking about life and meaning and what's the purpose? Why am I here? Where am I going? Is there a God? You know, are we alone in the universe? What is the universe? You know, all these things. We have this capacity. Close quote. In this choice to think or not to think, to focus one's mind or not to focus it, to assume the responsibility of the conceptual level of consciousness or to evade it, and in this choice alone is man psychologically free. That choice once made does not continue to direct man's mind unceasingly thereafter with no further effort required. Just as the state of full mental focus must be initiated volitionally, 
so it must be maintained volitionally. The choice... This is another interesting point. So not only do you have to make a choice to think volitionally, meaning using your free will, but you have to make the choice to maintain that state of mind. It's not enough to just walk in and do it one time and then think you've got it practicing any, any skill or, or habit or whatever, or trying to maybe even get rid of bad habits. Like it's not just going to happen on the first go. It takes training, right? If you walk into my dojo and I show you a move one time, you might be able to understand it and conceptually understand it, but doing it and then being able to do it under pressure and duress, uh, under complex situations and circumstances is a totally different ball game that takes training. It takes development. So your free will is something that needs to be sharpened. Your reason and your critical thinking and your pattern recognition and all of these things that we ascribe to logic, which comes from the word logos, right? Which implies that there's a higher logic, you know, we're just conduits for it, but that's another argument. Um, that we have this capacity to think and reason. We have this ability to do it, but it must be sustained. There's many people that I noticed even during a lot of the propaganda that we went through during the pandemic that in the beginning were very much like, yeah, you know, I, there is some weird contradictions that I'm seeing with what we're being told. And um, you, you might be right. There must, might be something going on here, might be misleading us in some way. And then propaganda built up, which means the fear built up over time. And then those people totally got rid of that thought and just went back into the collective mind and said, no, I'm just going to go along with the program not going to think for myself anymore. That was too scary. How dare I even attempt it? Who am I? Right? So they didn't sustain the effort that it takes to think. They decided not to think and to just go with the program. And that's where this becomes very relevant, this discussion, right? Because we see a lot of people doing that. We get into the history of mind control and all this and propaganda and how to actually use these forces to manipulate human consciousness, especially the mass mind. And uh, a whole other discussion jumps on this table really quick, but let's let them continue. To think must be reaffirmed in the face of every new issue and problem. The decision to be in focus yesterday will not compel man to be in focus today. The decision to be in focus about one question will not compel man to be in focus about another. The decision to pursue a certain value does not guarantee that man will exert the mental effort needed to achieve it. In any hour of his life, then, man is free to suspend the function of his consciousness, to abandon effort, and to let his mind drift in willless passivity or he is free to maintain only a partial focus, grasping that which comes easily to his understanding and declining to struggle for that which does not. Just think about that. You get to pick and choose on a daily basis whether you're going to activate your mind and do the go through the effort of thinking. That's, that's the key word, isn't it? The effort of thinking. It takes effort effort and who the hell in this modern age wants to use effort we got technology now we got solutions to all these things now so we don't really want to exert too much effort thinking because in that exerting of effort thinking we might start thinking about things that we don't really want to think about and then that pings the trauma 
and the fear and it develops the anxiety. And then you've got forces at work in the world that are using that against you and manipulating it and, and, and in heightening those fears to manipulate you into a specific direction. And so the person that's choosing of their own will not to think is the primary target of the cult leader, the propagandist, the, the tyrant, you know, the manipulator, the psychic vampire of which there are plenty running around, aren't there? So which philosophy just briefly described there promotes freedom and which promotes totalitarianism, which philosophy enhances you and, and is asking you to live a heroic life and is asking you to take part in life and to not be a speck of dust flying around manipulated by these unseen antecedent forces all the time, but to actually be here to live and participate by making decisions. The first primary decision, which is to turn on the function of free will and use it and apply it. And that the way you do that, the primary way to do that is to first turn on your thinking, which means that's not something you just go and meditate. Oh, I'll turn my thinking. You think it's a, it's a, an action that you participate in. It's something you do. It's a doing. And thus there, you can get into the whole philosophy of some of the idealists who are saying that's what the universe is. It's a doing. We're just witnessing the effects of the doing. And we'll get into that as we go. But, um, I just thought that was a really good little summary. And then I've got more. Let's uh, keep going. Because we got to nail this. This is so, so key. I'm going to go to this one here. This was uh, a little chat on the new ideal with Ankar Gadi. And he had some interesting statements on this. They actually watched the whole podcast that Sam Harris did and went through it point by point to refute where, he, where he's coming from, giving the, uh, the other side of the story. So I recommend the entire video. They go through it bit by bit. They let you hear the clips and then they give you the counter arguments to it. But this is just a little section of that. I wanted to point out a couple of things here. Free will is the idea that you have the power to choose to select between alternatives to take different paths in life, that your life is not determined by antecedent factors, whether they're your genes, your past environments, the alignment of the planets before you were born or something else still. But for a long time, scientifically minded intellectuals have argued that to think that human beings have free will is to remain under the sway of some kind of religious worldview. Are they right about that? A recent podcast by Sam Harris, the uh, prominent public intellectual, gives us a good chance to think about the reasons they usually give for thinking that we don't have any free will. Welcome to New Idea Live, uh, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. Today, we're going to be discussing this question, why Sam Harris is wrong about free will. Uh, with me is Ankar Gatte, ARI's senior fellow. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. What struck me from this podcast, even more so than in the book, is how Humean his view is. 
So Humean means the, David Hume's philosophy. So how much it is a reiteration of what Hume said. And I think this, the whole perspective on causality is Hume's perspective. And if you know philosophy and the history of philosophy, Hume's view is one account of cause and effect. It's not synonymous with every account. There's different accounts. There's accounts that reject the way David Hume conceptualizes cause and effect. And Ayn Rand in Objectivism is one philosophy that rejects it. So the I thought this was important to point out, just so you guys know that when you hear people like Sam Harris, and there's so many of these people out there that are acting as if they're inventing their own ideas and theories, and that this is the first time these ideas have ever been introduced to the world, and if only we could integrate them around our, in our countries, we could resolve all these problems that we're having, right? That's kind of the way it's portrayed, but nothing new under the sun. Basically, Sam Harris is relying on a handful of different philosophers here, but he's bringing up David Hume, specifically the way that Sam Harris brings the argument of cause and effect. And of course, there's a law of cause and effect. We, we see it, <laughs> you know, we get it. Uh, but there's, did you know that there's different interpretations of the law of cause and effect? Do people even know that this is a debate? That there's different thinkers on the subject that don't agree? that there's even theories we haven't even gone into that exist. Yet, look at the confidence of Sam Harris when he's bringing his argument. This is, we know this now, we know it. Do you, are you repeating David Hume and a few other philosophers and you're just siding with their arguments? That doesn't mean we know it. It means you believe it based on their arguments, but we're not even gonna look at the other arguments that counter that. So I thought that was an interesting point to bring up, but let's let them continue. The why is it so easy for Harris to go from there's cause and effect to there's determinism, which means that it's antecedent causes, antecedent factors that produce the present. And so you can go back and back and back and you can go to a time that you weren't even born. And what happened then is going to determine whether you have a cup of coffee or a tea today um, and everything about your life you can trace back to even before you were born. And it, everything you do is determined by that, by these prior factors. That's what he's equating, that if you accept cause and effect, you have to accept that view of human beings and everything else in existence. And what it relies on is that cause and effect is about events. His whole concept, there's events. So an event is things happening is, is sort of the, the way he characterizes it. And, it. and he puts something like, well, they, things seem to happen. And if you have one event, that's what you have. And if the cause is the previous event, then the cause is something prior. And the cause of that event is a previous event. And then, so the, your whole notion of cause and effect is inherently temporal like this. And it's to look for a cause is to look into the past for why the present is what it's like. But there's a whole different view of cause and effect that says um, what it's about is things acting. It's about entities in the world, a bird flying, a squirrel running across uh, the yard. I was just looking in my backyard uh, this morning and thinking, like, what are all the causal relationships you see? And this is the kind of stuff I, I back up onto a forest. You see birds flying around. Um, flapping in the bird bath, you see squirrels running across the grass, you see, we have a wind sock, you see it in the wind blowing. And if you think of cause and effect, it's things doing stuff. 
it's the cause is the thing and what it is. The bird's able to fly because of what it is. It has wings, which it's beating, it's aerodynamic. And the action is it's traveling through the air, it's not landbound. Um, and it's then the cause and the effect are simultaneous. It's the thing acting. And if you think of it like this, and this is really in a wide sense, the Aristotelian way of looking at cause and effect, that it's about things acting and it's stress, Ayn Rand stresses that this is the way that you conceptualize cause and effect. If you do that, you can equate cause and effect with causes or antecedent factors and what it is about tracing back in time um, to the prior event and the prior event and the prior event. You don't think about cause and effect in terms of events. It's things that act. That's the phenomenon, not one event followed by another. And then that's going to have some important implications for how we think about free will, right? Because the the objectivist view, at least, Ayn Rand's view, is very far from the idea that free will is some exception to causation, to, to the law of causality. It's very much assumed to be a special instance of it. And uh, everything that we do, uh, everything that we choose, is caused by something. It is, it is caused by us. Uh, that, that the agent is the source of the causation. Uh, somebody, uh, we, we, got a, we got a super chat donation. Uh, someone asks, can man's volitional consciousness be a cause? And I think the answer here, at least from Ayn Rand's perspective, is very much yes, that, that there is something in the nature of our consciousness that causes us to face a choice. And then when we make a choice, we are the ones who are doing it. Um, now, there's a question of who is, who is the, what is the I that is doing that? And that's going to be something that comes up in uh, Harris's later argument. But um, yeah. And I'd say that's part of what's interesting that it, though he puts cause and effect in terms of events, he has a sense in the background that it's really about an agent and an agent choosing or an agent selecting. So, so that he's got to attack the idea that there's an agent and that's in the video he's going to go on to, no, there's no you there to make any choices. There's no agent. Um, and on his view of cause and effect, you don't really need that argument. It's already erased all the agents. It's just events and events, but he knows at an implicit level that, yeah, that's not exactly true. So I have, again, just as his, description of the external world in terms of cause and effect it has it does not um conceptualize properly i think at all my experience of the world uh, my awareness of the world so that the way i think of cause and effect and what you actually observe that you're conceptualizing as cause and effect is not event previous event previous event so when he turns inward and it's asking you not now to look outward at the world, but look inward at the operations of your mind, his conceptualization of what is going on and sort of his description of it is, I find it completely alien. It is not at all the way I introspect the, what is going on in my mind. And I think this is, if other people introspect, it will be, yeah, this is not what is going on. And part of it, so just as he has event as this is the kind of way I'm going to conceptualize things in the external world. So there's not things, there's just events. So internally, it's he conceptualizes it in terms of there's experience. 
that's not the right way to conceptualize consciousness. Consciousness is awareness. It's primarily awareness of the world external to you and the things in it and the things acting and interacting. And you can turn inward, you can turn that awareness inward and think like, what is going on in my mind? But when you do that, what you have and what you can observe is there's my awareness and then my processing of my awareness. And the awareness itself is a process that, to perceive the world and so on. I have to walk around, turn my head, direct my eyes, listen for things. It's an active process. And when he's saying it's, which I think is true, that what makes us most human is our ability to think, this is an active process as well. So his example of you know, you don't know any more what you're going to think than what Sam Harris is going to say next. My experience is, no, that's a completely false. In a thought process, I'm directing it and controlling it. Right now, I'm doing a podcast. I have 10 other things that are pressing that I need to do. I'm saying, no, I'm not going to pay attention to those right now. This is what I'm focused on. This is what I'm dealing with. And we're focused on Sam Harris's arguments. This is what this is the process that's going on in my mind and I'm controlling and directing it. And, and once in a while, when you're talking, something comes up from my subconscious. Well, what about, you know, you're supposed to be doing this as well. Yeah, that's for later. I tell myself, and that's what it means to be directing my thoughts. And that's exactly what I can't do for Sam Harris. And this is why often when you're thinking and you've got someone talking to you, you experience it like I can, I need to direct my thought and you're sort of intruding, but my thought process is not, my mind intruding on me or something. It, it's just completely false, I think, in terms of conceptualizing and describing what is going on in one's mind. The whole thing about thinking is you can direct it and you can control it. That doesn't mean control every aspect of it. And that's, again, the straw man that he seems to think to control it would be to control every aspect. Yeah, that's good points. I want to just let that play because and it was a few minutes, but just he had to get the point across here, which is that this is one of the things missing that it's kind of obvious when this is what's missing. Everything they're arguing, these determinists, is based on what's happening outside of you. But when you start introspecting and you start thinking about how you think, is every thought you're thinking already determined? If it's, if you're, and then, and then if the, if the, uh, I can't remember the word they used, but let's say the, the observer of your mind, whatever it is that observes yourself, think you're, you're observing right now, your own thought process, right? <laughs> you're listening to me and then you're thinking, oh yeah, what kind of examples can I think of in my own thinking? What is observing that? What mechanism is observing that and even able to formulate that? And then how are you able to push other thoughts out of your mind. You're able to show up to this podcast at this time on August 18th, 2023, and sit down and, and listen and think to yourself and decide what you like, what you don't, what you agree with, what you don't. And you're excluding other comments in your head, other thoughts going on in your head. You're excluding other podcasts right now. I mean, hopefully you're not listening to like 10 podcasts all at the same time. It'd be too confusing, but you're you're arranging your thoughts, you're directing your thoughts. But he's giving some credit to say, that doesn't mean we direct and control every part of our thinking. So there's extreme views that can be made here. But that that's really the straw man of these determinists is that they're 
uh, trying to say that it's as if we're saying everything is built on free will. Because there's so many examples they can point to where you're not using your free will. And of course, when you live in a world of all this propaganda and all the things we talk about here on this show going on, you realize there are forces at work to try to direct your mind and direct your belief systems for you. And you could say, well, because people are going along with that, they followed Jim Jones to Jonestown and drank the Kool-Aid and Anthony Felci and all the rest or whatever, that they are not capable of using their own free will. Well, yeah, you could say, but the choice to not be capable, the choice to not arrange your thinking and direct your thinking and to instead let other people's ideas direct your thinking was in fact a primary choice that was made. It was not antecedent. It was not based on your genetics or hereditary or anything like that. It was influenced by social pressures. It was influenced by influencers. But you still had the choice because you can change your mind. <laughs> you can change your mind on any of this at any moment. Right now, you could be like, hey, in the first part of the podcast, I was totally with you, Dave. And then once you brought up some of these people, I realized they're just full of crap and I'm with Sam Harris or the other way around. So people went, I was, I was kind of leaning towards what Sam Harris was saying. And then I started hearing some of these counters and we haven't even gotten into all of them yet. And now I'm starting to change my mind, right? We're living it right now in this live podcast, this process. And then after the podcast is done, you're probably going to later, it's going to come up in your head. You're going to start thinking of count. You might go look up other information on this, other ideas on this. You're going to have your own ideas. You might even dream about it. I don't know. Um, and then tomorrow you might have a little bit of different thinking because you're, and, and you're, you focus your mind on this topic of free will and determinism. And maybe you're not focusing as much on all the wildfires going on or all the other stuff going on. You're going to put that in the back burner for now. And then maybe when time is right, you're going to go back to looking into what's going on in the world and, or whatever subject you're into or whatever video game you're about to play or what you, you know, you're going to do with your kids later. You're directing a part of it. And uh, that's that alone just starts to bring this whole thing into an even greater light. So I'm going to pause the other Brandon bit and we're just going to go to, I'll show you this one really quick. I just found a quick article here. This was by Scientific American. Uh, what was not Who is the author again? It's actually from, oh, it's from Bernardo Castrup, who we're going to get to later down the road. I just got a bit, let me just show it to you. All right, so here's the article, Scientific American. It's really small, so I guess I don't have to screen share it. But I'll put this here, I'll put this in the chat for you. Let me throw it up on Rockfin first. So you can follow along. And it's a great article, by the way. So definitely check it out. There's my chat. And this is Rumble here. Yeah. So the title of the article is Yes, Free Will Exists. Okay, so let's just read a little bit. Uh, he's getting into Schopenhauer a little bit here, and he's saying, at least since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, one of the most central questions of human existence has been whether or not we have free will. So just to illustrate again, it's not a new question. In the late 20th century, some thought neuroscience had settled the question. 
However, as it has recently become clear, such was not the case. So they like to pretend it's the case, but it's not. There are many refutations that are coming out now. And I'm talking about coming from within the world of science, okay? The elusive answer is nonetheless foundational to our moral codes, criminal justice system, religions, and even to the very meaning of life itself. For if every event of life is merely a predictable outcome of mechanical laws, one may question the point of it all. But before we ask ourselves whether or not we have free will, we must understand what exactly we mean by it. A common and straightforward view is that if our choices are predetermined, then we don't have free will. Otherwise, we do. Yet upon more careful reflection, this view proves surprisingly inappropriate. To see why, notice first that the prefix pre is predetermined choice and is entirely redundant. Not only are all predetermined choices determined by definition, all determined choices can be regarded as predetermined as well. They always result from dispositions or necessities that precede them. Therefore, what we are really asking is simply whether our choices are determined. In this context, a free-willed choice would be an undetermined one. But what is an undetermined choice? It can only be a random one. For anything that isn't fundamentally random reflects some underlying disposition or necessity that determines it. There is no semantic space between determinism and randomness that could accommodate choices that are neither. This is a simple but important point, for we often think incoherently of free-willed choices as neither determined nor random. So he's just kind of correcting the, the language of this. Our very notion of randomness is already nebulous and ambiguous to begin with. Operationally, we say that a process is random if we can't discern a pattern in it. However, a truly random process can, in principle, produce any pattern by mere chance. The probability of this happening may be small, but it isn't zero. So when we say that a process is random, we are merely acknowledging our ignorance of its potential underlying causal basis. As such, an appeal to randomness doesn't suffice to define free will. Moreover, even if we did, when we think of free will, we don't think of mere randomness. Free choices aren't erratic ones, are they? neither are they undetermined. If I believe that I make free choices, it is because I feel that my, my choices are determined by me. A free choice is one determined by my preferences, likes, dislikes, character, etc., as opposed to someone else's or other external forces. I just love that point, and he makes it in a video I'm going to play in a bit too, um, where if we ask the question of determinism, he's trying to correct the debate a little bit and add a little bit more... Um, just better definitions because we get lost in words. We get lost in terms and, and many of these debates carry on because there's a misunderstanding of what someone means when they say a word versus what the other guy means and they're using the same word and everybody gets confused, right? So what he's trying to clear up is that if we say on the side of free will, okay, if we say that we don't believe in psychological determinism we believe in free will. He's saying that's not the correct way to frame it because technically, if you believe in free will, you do believe in psychological determinism. The difference between you and the materialist determinist is what is the causal factor that determines your will? They say it's mechanistic universe and antecedent forces and genetics and all these other excuses. That's what I, I call them. On the free will side, we actually do believe in determinism. We just believe the source of determinism is the I, is the mind, is 
our consciousness. So we do believe in determinism. It's just a different thing. That's basically what he's saying. Uh, so just wanted to clear that up. Uh, now, I also want to get your attention. I'm going to share this as well. Sorry, it takes me a sec because I've got a few places to drop it. This is the next one. I'm going to get some Rupert Sheldrake going here. Take note of these. And if you missed them in the chat, guys, I will post these after the show on my Telegram channel. You can get me at DWTruthWear. And yes, I'll do a Twitter thread on it also, just so you can get all that. Um, here we go. We got your rumble. Perfect. Okay. So let's just go through a little bit of what Sheldrake is saying on this. So this is a paper that was written, uh, when was this? 2013. Setting science free from materialism. So now we're getting a little deeper into uh, some of the problems within the scientific world. We've been covering a lot of this on Unslaved, and it absolutely relates to this discussion of freedom, free will, and um, materialism, because the premise of the mechanistic universe determinism, that brand of determinism that they're espousing, that Sam Harris and all these other guys and Yuval Harari are talking about, isn't the be-all and end-all. It is rooted in another worldview that underlies it, that motivated that conclusion. And that worldview is the particular brand of materialism that is in science. And so this is where people like Rupert Sheldrake, who come from that world, um, as did Alfred North Whitehead, who was another philosopher that was totally died in the flesh materialist until he had his eureka moments and then started writing against it and was more of an advocate for some of the stuff we're talking about with free will. Um, and there's been many, but let's just get a bit from Sheldrake on this. He says, contemporary science is based on the claim that all reality is material or physical. There is no reality, but material reality. Consciousness is a byproduct of the physical activity of the brain. Matter is inherently unconscious. Evolution is purposeless. This view is now undergoing a credibility crunch. The biggest problem of all for materialism is the existence of human consciousness. Panpsychism provides a way forward. So does the recognition that minds are not confined to brains. The scientific worldview is immensely influential because the sciences have been so successful. No one can fail to be awed by their achievements, which touch all of our lives through technologies and through modern medicine. Um, you know, there's always the other side to that as well. Our intellectual world has been transformed through an immense expansion of our knowledge down into the most microscopic particles of matter and out into the vastness of space with hundreds of billions of galaxies in an ever expanding universe. Yet in the second decade of the 21st century, when science and technology seem to be at the peak of the power, when their influence has spread all over the world, and when their triumph seems indisputable, unexpected problems are disrupting the sciences from within. And we've been documenting this, guys, what he's talking about um, for a long time on the Unsaved podcast. It's a major feature of what we do over there. Most scientists take it for granted that these problems will eventually be solved by more research along established lines. But some, including myself, think that they are symptoms of a deeper malaise. Science is being held back by centuries-old assumptions that have hardened into dogmas. The sciences would be better off without them, freer, more interesting, and more fun. The biggest scientific delusion of all is that science already knows the answers. And even though when you bring that up to somebody that comes from that camp, 
they'll always say, no, we don't profess to know. We just test it based on science and evidence and we just go with the best evidence. Yes, but you're arguing for the scientific method, which I agree with you on. That would be the ideal process. That's what Sheldrake would agree with you on, right? But what we disagree on is that that is actually the current state of science, of, of science when we're talking about the institutions that have rested all of their worldviews on particular dogmas, right? So the, they do operate. Look at the way Sam Harris introduced his idea of free will not basically being an illusion. He's like, we now know for certain this is what it is. It's already done. That's how they talk about it. Just like they did when they rolled out these jabs. These jabs are 96% effective at stopping the transmission of the virus. That's what they said. That's what the science said in terms of this medical procedure. And then, oh, no, it was 78% effective. No, it was 62% effective. 40%, 10%. Now we don't even know. Oh, we didn't even test for transmissibility. We get that from Pfizer under oath in the European Parliament. On and on we can go, right? So you start to go, wait a minute. You were so certain that you actually locked the world down and used coercive methods to make everybody take this thing that you said was safe and effective. And now we're seeing other science coming out to disprove that. And now we have testimony on record of admissions to that fact from the people that made this product, right? And that's only one example. We could go through many examples of where this comes in, where you have a false certainty, which is not supposed to be part of science. So for the people saying guys like Rupert Sheldrake and these others are scientific dissenters or scientific deniers, science deniers, or even people that question what they're telling you about climate change or any of these other issues, that they're science deniers. That if I go to actual peer-reviewed studies and show you in the scientific literature where there's been many problems with many of these drugs that they've been giving us for years, that science has been done on it, or even that there's scientists that have done work on this discussion about free will and consciousness and the brain and how it works, that it's not a consensus, and that even there's an argument to be made against the idea of scientific consensus. Because some of the greatest inventions and ideas came from people who went against the consensus of the day, right? So there's all these problems. These guys are science. They're trying to continue the investigation where the current priesthood of science that says we've got it all figured out and everybody else is a raving lunatic that's questioning science and they're science deniers because they're denying your science, right? That's what has to be solved. And this is what he's kind of getting at. So the biggest scientific delusion of all is that science has already knows the answers. The details just still need working out, but the fundamental questions are all settled in principle, they say. Contemporary science is based on the claim that all reality is material or physical, that there is no reality but material reality. Consciousness is just a byproduct of the physical activity of the brain. Matter is unconscious. Evolution is purposeless. God exists only as an idea in human minds and hence in human heads. These beliefs are powerful not because most scientists think about them critically, but because they do not think about them critically. The facts of science are real enough, and so are the techniques that scientists use, and so are the technologies based on them. But the belief system that governs conventional scientific thinking is in fact an act of faith grounded in a 19th century ideology. And this is what I wanna just show you. This is where you gotta start looking. 
what is the premise of all these ideas? Where did Sam Harris even get this idea? He didn't make it up himself. He's repackaging thinkers from the 19th century. He's repackaging Hume and some of these other guys. Just as all the people telling you, the guys at the UN, oh, we need to build this world system now and do away with freedom and national sovereignty and do all this stuff where they, they have, they have a premise that they didn't invent, that they are repeating to you as if it's a new idea. Yoel Harari, nothing new is coming out of that guy's mouth that hasn't been said before by previous thinkers. That means there's also been other thinkers that have come over time to refute those claims and show a different theory. So just wanted to catch them on that because they really do like to pretend that they invented it all and they didn't. So here's the scientific creed that Rupert Sheldrake lays out. And he does this in his TED talk, but I just want to go through it with you quickly. Here are the 10 core beliefs that most scientists take for granted. He calls it the scientific creed. Number one, everything is mechanical. Dogs, for example, are complex mechanisms rather than living organisms with goals of their own. Even people are machines, lumbering robots, in Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase, with brains that are like genetically programmed computers. Like genetically programmed. So he's making an analogy and he's comparing it to a modern phenomena such as computers. Does that make it true? All matter is unconscious. This is number two. All matter is unconscious. It has no inner life or subjectivity or point of view. Even human consciousness is an illusion produced by the material activities of brains. Number three, the total amount of energy and matter is always the same, with the exception of the Big Bang, when all the matter and energy of the universe just suddenly appeared. The laws of nature are fixed. Number four, they are the same today as they were at the beginning and they will stay the same forever. Number five, nature is purposeless and evolution has no goal or direction because it is also de determined, but it's not determined by a goal. It's just happening. Six, all biological inheritance is material carried in the genetic material, DNA, and in other material structures. So everything every force that you're going to ascribe to your consciousness or your mind is simply just located somewhere in your DNA or in your genetic material. Number seven, minds are inside heads and are nothing but the activities of brains. When you look at a tree, the image of the tree you are seeing is not out there, which it seems to be, but inside your brain. This is what they want you to believe. Number eight, memories are stored as material traces in brains and are wiped out at death. Number nine, unexplained phenomena like telepathy are illusory. Number 10, mechanistic, me mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. So together, he says, these beliefs make up the philosophy or ideology of materialism, whose central assumption is that everything is essentially material or physical, even minds. This belief system became dominant within science in the late 19th century and is now just taken for granted. Many scientists are unaware that materialism is an assumption. They simply think of it as science or the scientific view of reality or the scientific worldview. That is true. That's where you're bumping heads with these guys. They're making an assumption while pretending that they're not making an assumption, not knowing that the assumption that is the basic premise of those 10 tenets comes from 19th century philosophers 
that uh, basically gave an assumption or a theory that they take as fact, right? And that's the difference. Is it fact? We're not even allowed to have the debate anymore. It's all settled, is it? They are not actually taught about it, these scientists, or given a chance to discuss it. They just absorb it by a kind of intellectual osmosis. In everyday usage, materialism refers to a way of life devoted entirely to material interests, a preoccupation with wealth, possessions, and luxury. These attitudes are no doubt encouraged by the materialist philosophy, which denies the existence of any spiritual realities or non-material goals. But in this article, I am concerned with materialism's scientific claims rather than its effect on lifestyles. In the spirit of radical skepticism, each of those 10 doctrines can be turned into a question, as I show in my book, The Science Set Free, called The Science Delusion in the UK. Entirely new vistas open up when a widely accepted assumption is taken as the beginning of an inquiry rather than as an unquestionable truth. What would you rather, guys? What would you rather? You want people walking up and giving you unquestionable truths all the time? And maybe that makes you feel secure because you're like, well, now I have an answer that I can cling to so that I don't have to think for myself to see if there's other answers. It's very attractive to sell people the idea that it's already been solved. Religion does it and science does it. They are both culpable in this grand deception to get you to not think for yourself. And who benefits from that state of affairs? That's my question. So for example, he says, the assumption that nature is machine-like or mechanical becomes a question rather than a statement. Is nature mecha mechanical? See, you ask it as a question, now we're dealing in the world of philosophy. The assumption that matter is unconscious becomes, is matter unconscious? And so on. Then he gets more into the credibility crunch for the scientific worldview. For more than 200 years, materialists have promised that science will eventually explain everything in terms of physics and chemistry. Science will prove that living organisms are complex machines, minds are nothing but brain activity, and nature is purposeless. Believers are sustained by the faith that scientific discoveries will justify their beliefs. The philosopher of science, Karl Popper, called this stance promissory materialism because it depends on issuing promissory notes for discoveries not yet made. So like, we'll, we'll, we'll prove it in the future, just go with it for now, and let's build our entire society on our assumptions. Despite all the achievements of science and technology, materialism is now facing a credibility crunch that was unimaginable in the 20th century. In 1963, he's telling this story, when I was studying biochemistry at Cambridge University, I was invited to a series of private meetings with Francis Crick and Sidney Brenner in Brenner's rooms in the King's College, along with a few of my classmates. Crick and Brenner had recently helped to crack the genetic code. Both were ardent materialists, and Crick was also a militant atheist. They explained there were two major unsolved problems in biology, development and consciousness. So it's rare you get them to admit this, but here we go. They had not been solved because the people who worked on them were not molecular biologists, nor very bright. Crick and Brenner were going to find the answers within 10 years or maybe 20, and Brenner would take developmental biology and Crick consciousness. They both invited us to join them. Both tried their best. Brenner was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2002 for his work on the development of a tiny worm, the name of which I can't pronounce. 
Crick corrected the manuscript of his final paper on the brain the day before he died in 2004. At his funeral, his son Michael said that what made him tick was not the desire to be famous, wealthy, or popular, but to knock the final nail into the coffin of vitalism. And vitalism is the theory that living organisms are truly alive and not explicable in terms of physics and chemistry alone. Crick and Brenner failed. The problems of development and consciousness remain unsolved. Many details have been discovered. Dozens of genomes have been sequenced and brain scans are ever more precise. But there is still no proof that life and minds can be explained by physics and chemistry alone. The fundamental proposition of materialism is that matter is only reality. Therefore, oh, sorry, that matter is the only reality. Therefore, consciousness is nothing but brain activity. It is either like a shadow, an epiphenomena that does nothing, or it is just the other way of talking about brain activity. However, among contemporary researchers in neuroscience and consciousness studies, there is no consensus about the nature of minds. So did you know that, friends? Did you know, are your kids being taught this? That behind the doors, behind the book sales and the guys that are out there on the circuit, on the podcast, and all these guys that are talking about this stuff, did you know that behind those doors, there's still intense debate and argumentation about this? In the, I'm talking in the scientific world. Leading journals such as Behavioral and Brain Sciences and the Journal of Consciousness Studies published many articles that reveal deep problems with the materialist doctrine. The philosopher David Chalmers has called the very existence of subjective experience the hard problem. You hear the hard problem of science? Go look into it. It is hard because it defies explanation in terms of mechanisms. Even if we understand how eyes and brains respond to red light, the experience of redness is not accounted for. In biology and psychology, the credibility rating of materialism is failing. Can physics ride to the rescue? Some materialists prefer to call themselves physicalists to emphasize that their hopes depend on modern physics, not 19th century theories of matter. But physicalism's own credibility rating has been reduced by physics itself for four reasons. And he's going to go through it all. This is a very lengthy article. I'm not going to go through it. He has a great question here. Um, maybe I'll just do this a little bit, just to frame the question a little bit more. He's asking, is matter consciousness, okay? The central doctrine of materialism is that matter is the only reality. And they look, your brain is matter, so that's why they think of this deterministic theory, okay? So the central doctrine of materialism is that matter is the only reality. Therefore, consciousness ought not to exist. Materialism's biggest problem is that consciousness does indeed exist. You are conscious now. The main opposing theory, dualism, accepts the reality of consciousness, but has no convincing explanation for its interacting and interaction with the body and the brain. Dualist materialist arguments have gone on for centuries. But if we question the dogma that matter is unconscious, we can move forward from this sterile opposition. Scientific materialism arose historically as a rejection of mechanistic dualism, which defined matter as unconscious and souls as immaterial, as I discussed below. One important motive for rejecting this, for this rejection was the elimination of souls and God, leaving unconscious matter as the only reality left. In short, materialists treated subjective experience as irrelevant. Dualists accepted the reality of experience, but were unable to explain how the minds affect brains. And then he goes through. So he's talking about some theories that were battling it out 
And now some of the new thinkers on this are really starting to solve these equations, but they're not being discussed. All right. So just wanted to lay that. So that's another study that you can bring into this. So you don't just go and watch a couple of videos and make up your mind. You have to get to the underpinnings of all these ideas. It takes a lot of time. It takes the effort of activating your reason. I know it's hard, but if you do it, you'll gain much more knowledge of this subject. And then when you're hearing the debates, you'll actually be able to understand what's going on. And knowing more about this grants you the ability to make up a much more rational conclusion and belief that actually you did your homework, you put the time in, and then of course you keep it flexible to change. And the ability to keep it flexible to change alone, in my opinion, proves the case for free will, but you got to take it all together. Okay. So let's do, um, I'm wow. Time is flying. I got to really get through this. All right. So let's go to another clip here. This one's a little longer. I'll see. Actually, I'm going to finish with that one. I'm going to switch over to analytic idealism. Yeah, let's do this one. This is Castro talking about it. And he's one of the number one advocates for idealism. Um, and he does speak a lot about free will. And so let's just hear a little bit of this. Now, the question of free will um, frequently and understandably uh, arises in this context of idealism. And the reason is the following. Um, our culture understands free will as free mental choice. So if my choices are made by me, I have free will. But if my choices are actually made by brain physiology, if my choices are determined by the physiology of my brain, then I don't have free will. Now, if under analytic idealism, brain physiology is what choices look like, as opposed to being what generates choices, then there is free will under analytic idealism, isn't there? Because now my choices are not made by brain physiology. Brain physiology is merely what my choices look like when they are observed from across a dissociative boundary. If your intuition of free will and determinism has to do only with whether your choices are made by your brain physiology or not, then that conclusion is correct. Then, under analytic idealism, you have no reason to think that we don't have free will if the alternative is that choices are made by brain physiology. That's the good news. But let's look deeper into the question and try to understand what we really, really mean when we talk of free will. When we say free will, we don't mean that our choices are random, right? Uh, if, if our choices are random, they're not free, they're just random. But we also don't mean that our choices are fully determined, because then, then they, they are not free. So it would seem that free will is something somewhere in the middle between uh, randomness and full determinism. Now, I submit to you that there is no middle ground between the two. It's just not there. It doesn't exist. Things are either determined or they are random. And actually, there may be nothing random in the universe. No, no quantum theory 
you know, individual events seem to be random, but maybe new understandings in the future will get rid of that part as well. Randomness may be purely epistemic. In other words, when we say that something is random, we may mean that we don't know what determines it, and that's all there is to it. But either way, there is no semantic space between randomness and determinism. So what does free will mean? Now, I think what we mean by free will is that our choices are determined, they are not random, but they are determined by that which I identify with. For instance, if my choices are determined by my views, my preferences, my desires, my, my dispositions, my fears, then my choices, my choices are, are, are free. They are determined, but they are determined by me. They are determined by phenomena or events that I identify myself with. I identify with my preferences. I identify with my dispositions, my, 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 my desires, my plans, my wishes. And if my choices are determined by those, then they are free. But notice that this does not contradict determinism. My free choices are still determined. They are just determined by me. So free will boils down to identification. What do we identify with? If our choices are, are determined by that which we identify with, then they are free. Do, I, do we identify with brain activity, with physiology? No, I have never seen my brain physiology. I cannot possibly identify me, myself with those. So that is out of the picture. Um, but let's now look at how our choices actually unfold in real life. Do I choose my thoughts, what thoughts come to me? No, I don't think I do. Do I choose my emotions? Certainly I don't, otherwise I would never suffer, I would never feel anxious, I would never feel afraid, I would never feel depressed, because I choose my choices, I, I choose my emotions. Uh, no, my depression, my anxiety, they happen to me, I don't choose them. Um, if you go down this line of investigation, you quickly realize that you don't choose what you think, you don't choose what you feel. Uh, you witness your thoughts and your feelings like you witness the trees along the street as you walk down the street. They are experiences that come to you, experiences you have, not that you chose. If we truly have free will from the sense that everything we think and feel is determined by the ego, because the ego is that mental complex that we do identify with. It's that narrative of individual selfhood. The person that was born that day and does this for a living, is married to that other person. That's the ego. The ego clearly doesn't choose my thoughts and my emotions. Otherwise, I would be the happiest man in the universe, even if I, I were serving a life sentence in solitary confinement because I would choose to experience solitary confinement as the most exhilarating thing in existence. That's clearly not the case. So as Schopenhauer put it, we are free to act according to our will, but we are not free to will our will. We don't choose what we want. We don't choose what we detest. We don't choose what makes us afraid. And we don't choose our thoughts and emotions. The ego has very little free will. Um, 
you could say the ego has free will to choose your best mortgage package or the best path to work given today's traffic jams. Little things, operational things. But in, when it comes to the big things of life, clearly the ego doesn't choose. The ego doesn't choose the person you fall in love with. The ego doesn't choose your, your desired profession. Uh, the ego doesn't choose your sense of meaning. Uh, nothing. So does analytic idealism mean that there is no free will? No. Again, free will, it's a matter of what we identify with. If you identify with the ego, you have very little free will. However, if you identify with core subjectivity, with that which remains after you are completely amnesic in a perfect sensory deprivation chamber, if that's what you identify with, then by definition you have absolute free will. Because core subjectivity is the lake where existence ripples. Everything is a ripple or a whirlpool in the lake of core subjectivity, that field of subjectivity that underlies all nature. If that's what you identify yourself with, then all of your choices, whatever they might be, as a matter of fact, all choices made by any living being to ever have lived or who will ever live, are your free-willed choices. Well, you pulled me in a little longer there. It's just a great clip. It really gets you thinking. He's bringing in some of the ideas of the, the idealists, right? And a very particular brand of it. And Kastrup is kind of the new guy talking about it. Uh, Michael and I even did a few criticisms uh, of some of his stuff on another show, but also gave him tons of praise for the information he's putting out there because nobody else is really doing it. And we might see a revolution in the field of neuroscience, philosophy, uh, coming out of it that's actually born out of these older idealistic schools um, and other schools as well that nobody really gets taught. They're taught only the materialist um, notion or the strict fundamentalist religious notion. That's pretty much all you're given. These guys are coming into the middle ground to say, hey, there's, a, there's something to it all, but we got to really get into the details and try to understand it. And what he's pointing out there is that you have sort of the ego consciousness that it makes a good point. There's so much of what we experience that we don't have control over. So it's easy for us to buy in and go, oh, well, <clears throat> there's no free will. But when he's talking about that sort of ego consciousness in his way of defining it, um, I do find the word ego problematic because there's different meanings for that word from different people, but whatever. Um, you know what we're talking about. That to me is the default settings. That's what I'm saying is the default settings, how he's describing the, the faculty that you don't, really get to control all of those thoughts and emotions you're sort of reacting to what's happening but then he goes to the level that the materialist won't go to which is he's talking about what uh we call in the unslaved podcast the imperial self the true self or in the religious language the kingdom of heaven within or the voice of god within or the voice of the holy spirit or uh william blake the british poet would have said it's the still small voice within you you have to turn the noise of the ego down so that you can hear that. That's the primal source of what gives you free will. This is why in theology and religion, doesn't really matter which one you look at for the most part, they ascribe free will with God, with the creator, with the source field. So they say God granted humanity free will and speaks through humanity and animates through humanity. But there's that element of humanity that's very 
carnal and primal and and that's the ego the material and that that's limited but this high but god is unlimited right that voice of god is unlimited your imagination and creativity is unlimited and it's in that realm that you have free will that is what grants you free will and that's how it was always viewed and and then we talked a lot recently on enslaved about the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, which again, so many misunderstandings with some of what he was coming up with. Um, and we're looking at it through a different lens right now in a few shows we're doing over there, um, where he was talking about how the argument for God or for spirit or for idealism is based in his statement where he said, I must clip the wings of reason to make way for faith. And of course, he did say clip the wings. He didn't say chop the wings off and get rid of reason, which some people interpret it as. Um, I think even Ayn Rand interpreted it as that was what he was saying, because many of his proponents and adherents were kind of going in that direction. But when you read Kant himself, he's just presenting the case. And that's the case that gave wind to uh, a very collapsing religious structure that was collapsing at the time under the weight of science. And he kind of breathed life back in to say, hey, Let's just keep it in separate realms. Like the scientists should study matter and physics and do the wonderful things that science does, but it should stay in that space and leave the realm of thinking about all these other matters of spirit and consciousness and all that. Leave it to the philosophers, leave it to the thinkers on those subjects. And that there is a case for what we call faith or belief in a higher power or a higher force whether you believe it to be an entity or a group of entities, or you believe it's just another form of consciousness that's animating the entire universe. doesn't really matter how you look at it. It's making way for that kind of faith when you basically rein in reason, not getting rid of it, not getting rid of the left brain way of looking at things, but just kind of rein it in to allow for faith to exist um, because that is what makes life have meaning. And if we get rid of meaning and we just live in this mechanistic deterministic universe, uh, which is also a theory and there's many problems with it on scientific grounds, mind you, but he was just saying, think of the state of the human being, think of our condition. What's better you living in a meaningless, purposeless existence, or you live in a meaningful purposeful existence. So he was trying to make the case for for that in that argument and so we go into all of that and it's a really interesting rabbit hole and then Kastrup is just echoing many of the other idealists like Schelling and Goethe and um Hegel even to all these other guys and kind of resurrecting it to say hey there's a middle ground here you there's part of your consciousness that is deterministic but it's determined by you and what do you think he's saying you being the true you, the real you. Alan Watts would say the real deep down you is the whole universe. It's an expanding, unfolding thing that's you're a conduit for. And so the conduit might have limitations, but the source of itself is freedom itself. It's at the very primal. That was one of Schelling's arguments as well, was that freedom was the ground of the human being. It was the base of where you had it. And then the animalistic brain, which can be programmed by the world, can come in and actually rob you of your freedom. And that is uh, the story of the battle between good and evil within your mind or the battle, not always evil, but the uh, oppositional forces or you know, the angel devil on your shoulder, the left, right hemisphere of the brain. Are you listening to the voice of God? God spoke to me. 
Or are you listening to the voice of the world, the programmed message that's just the robotic NPC message that is determined and has no flexibility? And it seems to be that you have a choice. This is what's crazy. You have a choice as to which voice you're going to listen to. And it's in that choice that you find freedom. Now, uh, final one, because I know we're running on time here. I'm going over time. And this one's a little bit longer. Um, I might not go through the whole thing, but it's just crucial because we're going back to Nathaniel Brandon here. And he makes some really fantastic points to further flesh this out. And I believe, yeah, this will be the last clip. Okay, so let's just go through it. I think this one's really valuable. Now consider this concept of focusing the mind. It is a state and an operation which each one of you is able very easily to discern introspectively. You all know what it means to be in a state of kind of vague, floating or dreaming, thinking about nothing, and then suddenly to attend to some particular issue, mentally to attend, to focus, to aim your cognitive faculty, as it were, in a certain direction. To say to yourself now, grasp this, make this intelligible, understand this. A simple example is one that you encounter every morning when you're waking up. You wake up and you're a bit drowsy and you feel as though your consciousness is rather splintered perhaps for a few seconds or minutes or hours. And at some point, presumably, you say, in effect, well, now, uh, what do I have to do today? And you begin to think over what is ahead of you this day, what you have to attend to. That's an act that you can catch, a very easy kind of act of focusing your mind, of making yourself fully conscious. There are many other examples which I shall discuss reflecting the same basic choice to think or not to think, to focus or not to focus. But in order to appreciate in a biological context this distinct human faculty, before proceeding with a further description of what the volitional faculty is and how it functions, I want to give it the following brief biological context. A basic characteristic of the actions of living organisms, of all living organisms, as distinguished from inanimate matter, is that the actions of living entities are goal-directed. That is, they are self-regulated action moving towards a certain end or goal. Now, Think about that. That's a good one, just a good point to think about. The fact that he's trying to point to regarding a volitional consciousness is that you, the, the human consciousness and this intelligence is goal-directed in a very specific way. And he's going to get into the difference between animal consciousness and all that. But we've got plenty of examples of people that turn off this faculty, go to the default settings, and don't operate with a goal. And in order to have a goal, uh, and we see the devastating consequences in their lives when they're goalless and aimless, right? We, the whole point of us raising our kids in a proper way is to give them reason to have goals. The goal motivates and incentivizes and inspires you. 
you need a goal. You need something to aim for. You need a mountain to climb. You need a fence to jump. Right. And so without a goal, without a purpose, what happens to the human mind? Go read some Alexander Solzhenitsyn because this has been tried on a political and social level many times to create a political system to rule humanity with that is based out of having no goal other than service to the ideal, the one singular ideal. They've given you the goal. They've erased all of their goals. That's why they come in. They want to destroy any different way of looking at the goal. And they want you to go with their goal. And it becomes very totalitarian because the fact is, is it just keeps getting proven wrong that everybody is the same inanimate stuff because there's people that disagree and go, no, I want to live a life of purpose and meaning. And in order to have that, I need freedom. Like that's the first recognition. I need political freedom to be able to pursue my goals. And of course, in philosophy, we have, and theology, we have the morality principle of when you're going to achieve your goals, are you infringing on other people's goals? Are you causing a lot of damage to the, to the earth or to be, to humanity in the achievement of your goals? Um, there's that the moral side, but you need a goal. If your children are growing up without a goal and they're being taught that the universe is purposeless and meaningless, what do you get? You get what we're seeing. You get degeneracy, you get hedonism, you get lack of self-control, you get absolutely obscene ideologies. Just look at all this woke stuff right now of you get to identify not as a human being that possesses volitional confidence con or consciousness and thereby personal responsibility, but you get to identify as anything you want because of the fact that they're saying you'll only derive meaning if you can identify as something and then have everybody else accept you for that thing that you've just randomly chosen that day of the week to identify as. That's your meaning. So the meaning comes from observance of other people, people observing you, and then they approve and clap, and then you have meaning. They're not, te that's, that's the result of teaching these people materialism and, and atheism on this level is it justifies that. But if you teach them that not only does your life, how can you teach somebody their life has meaning and purpose, which gives them goals, right? And creates a healthy lifestyle and promotes freedom, right? And health, I think. How can you teach somebody that they have meaning and purpose when you're teaching them that the universe they inhabit and every force in it is essentially meaningless and purposeless? What do you think is going to happen? Well, it's funny because humans rebel against this. We go with it in the ego consciousness, right? Usually to try to escape from the existential fear of even thinking about these questions. We'd rather have other people give us uh, prepackaged versions of it all and answers. Um, but we actually start to rebel against it after a while. Humans get bored of after a while of this. And we go, yeah, I'm kind of, I don't want to be told what to do anymore. I don't want the government to come and kick my door down every time I say a word they didn't like, or I didn't pay a tax that they just invented yesterday. Uh, I, I want freedom because we naturally, if, if what we're saying in this philosophy is true, humans gravitate towards being free. There is a part of us that gravitates towards 
security and collectivism and, and we keep voting in dictators and we keep signing up for cults, but that's a result of people living in the default settings and never going to this level of what Brandon's saying, which is to turn on that mind and actually use it and sharpen it and strengthen it and find purpose and meaning. And even if your purpose and meaning is in the search for purpose and meaning, there's still meaning there, right? At least give yourself a goal. That's one of the definite principles, one of the definitions of consciousness and of free will is that you have the ability to, what's your goal versus what my goal? Maybe your goal is different. But you need a goal to strive through or otherwise you're going to go into despair. You're going to go into um, distracting yourself from the big questions of life that would give you meaning. And instead you're finding meaning in inanimate things like a group, which doesn't exist. It's an illusion or like the government, which would like you to disbelieve every other way of being other than worshiping the state as the, the, the new gods or worshiping these guys as the new priests, right? It's to take meaning away from you and give you only one meaning, which is them. That's what a manipulator does. That's what a cult leader does. And that's what these tyrannical governments are trying to do. And they use, they benefit from these types of ideas that free will doesn't exist and it's illusion. They benefit from that because then that justifies their existence as the tyrants that they are. So let's continue. Now, obviously, when we deal with unconscious or more precisely non-conscious organisms like plants, we don't speak of the goal as something which the plant holds since it has no mind, but that we looking at the outside can see that there is a logic governing all of the actions of the plant or the tree or the shrub. One can see a unifying principle at work. And we see that the principle of life is always an integrated series of complex actions taken in that direction which will promote the growth and the survival of the organism. For example, you all have seen the perhaps instance of a plant beginning to grow in the direction of the sunlight and then perhaps a boulder rolls over part of it and it begins to grow around the boulder as though there is a clear principle directing it and it has a certain highly limited ability to vary its motion or its direction to end up in the same place. That is in a place where it will be in reach of the sun. Or we know of many experiments where Scientists interfere with the normal processes of the growth of a tree and within certain limits We see that the living organism has a certain flexibility to vary certain of its actions in order to end up with the same result This is well known in biology of course You can observe it internally on the vegetative level of your own bodies That is a very complex series of actions go on constantly within your own bodies all organized in an immensely complex way to add up to one result, namely the preservation of the life of the organism. The action is not random. It's highly structured, it's highly organized, and what you observe is that the life principle, whatever we may yet have to discover about it, the life principle possesses as its key characteristic this aspect of goal-directed, self-regulating action. All living organisms, however simple or however complex, exhibit it universally. That's entailed in the very nature of what it means to be alive. Now, 
Observe the transition from a plant to an animal. What you observe is an increasing complexity in the type of self-regulation which becomes possible. On the vegetative level or the plant level, you get an internal chemical, internal structural kind of regulatory activity. But you see a more complex expression of the principle of self-regulated action as soon as you enter the realm of conscious animals. Why? Because we observe that consciousness is the regulator of the action of the organism viewed as a total entity. What would be a simple example of this? Well, something very easy. Your cat or dog is walking across the room and uh, there's a carton in the middle of the living room. It sees it and it walks around it. That's the simplest example of where consciousness is regulating and guiding the action which the animal is taking. The animal, of course, depends for its survival upon its sense of smell, and of course its sense of smell is one aspect of its consciousness. So we see animals guided by their sensations, which obviously carries implicitly in it our recognition that an animal is guided by its form of consciousness. Now, an animal's consciousness is passive in that it can react to external stimuli, and according to how it reacts, being the passive recipient of messages coming in from the outside, it will, within limits, regulate the action which the animal will take accordingly. Animals are distinguished from plants, of course, by virtue of the fact that they can move, that they're not anchored to one spot, and their consciousness guides them in this process of motion. And so here, when you enter the animal realm, you observe a higher, more complex type of life organization and a more complex kind of self-regulated action. Now, when you deal with man, you deal not only with consciousness, but with a particular form or kind of consciousness to which we give the name mind. Man possesses a mind a reasoning faculty. Do you know the first definition of mind was discussing a reasoning faculty? I had this discussion with people because you get confused when people talk about the brain and the mind and how even some of the ancient religions as old as history used to have the same word in their language of mind and God, the creator. It was the same word. And people thought of that as being, oh, are you saying the, the human ego the frail little human brain is somehow being equated to the God of all the universe. Like, no, they were trying to indicate that their belief system was based on the fact that they thought that the human brain was the conduit for the mind of the universe, that we lived in the mind of God, that it might've been the same thing and that it's expressing itself through the conduit of the human being and that the mind would be different than the brain because the mind is indicating free will and the ability to reason. And he's talking about the degrees of consciousness going down from plants and minerals to animals, um, which are very instinctively based, to suddenly you've got mankind, which has got this unique blend of it all and has the ability to direct itself inwardly as well as outwardly. And that that faculty would be different than just the primitive animalistic brain with the neurons and all that, but that that's their, the ancient view is that 
it was like the light of God was shining through the prism of the mind and that that was where you got your free will from. That was where you got it. Now, whatever words you like or ways you like to break it down, it's actually what very similar to what Kastrup was talking about. Um, and it's just interesting to see how these ideas all work together. And, you know, some people that talk about it uh, have a different view of the cosmos and God and spirituality. Some people are more atheistic, but they're still coming to the same conclusions. They're just using different words and terms to describe this phenomena. And I find it's all important to digest uh, when we get to this question of whether or not you have free will or not. And the reason we need to ask that question is because we need to answer it so that we don't see our world move away from freedom in general. Because uh, this philosophy saying that there is no free will would help precipitate that. So a couple more minutes, guys, and then we'll get through this. A capacity to think, to abstract, to conceptualize. And now you observe with a corresponding increased complexity of life organization, a new kind, a new advance, a still more complex form of self-regulatory action, namely a being who is able to regulate the action of his own consciousness. That is what it means to say that man is a being of volitional consciousness. Man can direct his consciousness. What do I mean when I say that? Well, most of you or many of you probably own pets, and that will help you to give a concrete sense of what I'm talking about. A pet hears a sound and it jerks its head in that direction. Animals are entirely dependent upon and tied to the cues in their sensory fields. They don't think up problems to solve. They don't say, what will I think about today? And they certainly don't say, I'd rather not think about that today. It's too upsetting. <laughs> Their consciousnesses are passive reactors to the stimuli which they receive. But one of the important distinctive attributes of man's consciousness is that man has the power to regulate his own consciousness, to regulate its action to in effect decide in what direction it will go. Putting it differently, to decide whether or not it will think, whether or not it will turn the conceptual level or focus on at all. The basic act of self-regulation possible to a human consciousness is to direct that consciousness aimed in the direction of being aware, of being optimally conscious, of seeking to understand that with which it is dealing, or to suspend conscious focus, to go out of focus, to induce an inner fog. That is the basic self-regulatory option which a man has over his own consciousness. Putting it differently, what man controls is the primary goal. What he directly and volitionally controls is the primary goal or end which his consciousness is to pursue. And there's only one basic choice. Either in any given issue, a consciousness seeks to know, to grasp something, or it fails to or evades the effort or evades the responsibility of seeking to grasp. 
And this is another way of saying that man's basic choice is to think or not to think. Wow. Very well stated there. I hope you guys picked up on that. Go and listen to some of these and check out the sources here. Um, I find it very interesting that he brings up this choice. To it, The choices are always usually discussed on what decisions you make in life, but he's talking about the primary choice simply to activate the conceptual faculty that you have. You have levels of, there's levels to the game, basically. White belt to black belt, right? So to speak. You've got perceptual where you're like an animalistic, you're looking around, you're perceiving things happening, the perceptual level of consciousness. Most people stay trapped there. The next layer of the mind that you do have the ability to activate and sharpen and even train and, and really um, experience is conceptual thinking. So you're not just perceiving, memorizing and repeating and copying like an NPC brain that so many people have. You're conceiving of things. You're thinking of new ideas. You're using your imagination. You're, you're visualizing now. You're dreaming at night. This is, the, this is where the hard problem comes in. It comes in at the conceptual level, the hard problem of science. It comes in at the conceptual level. We know we perceive. We can just explain how the cones in the eyes and all that work with the brain and the mirror effect and how we don't see all the spectrum of light and you know, we have horrible night vision. Like we can get very technical on the human eyeball and the physical brain and how that works. And there are still many mysteries to be solved there, but we know a lot about it, but that's still dealing with the perceptual level. And maybe when they're saying, Oh, you have no such thing as free will. They're really only dealing with the perceptual, but why don't they say it? They actually reject totally that you even really have a conceptual faculty in the way that a, a philosopher or a true genius thinker would, would talk about it not as a mechanism, but as something much deeper, much bigger. And it's what grants you the ability to, as he was saying, direct your consciousness, that you have an ability to direct your consciousness. And then you bring in Kastrup's ideas about how there are certain things you can direct and certain things you can't. So great middle ground there. What's wrong with that? So I don't want to keep going because we're already almost at three hours. Holy smokes. I played some pretty long clips today because some of these guys, none of this is just, none of this stuff can get on mainstream media, okay? Because it's too long and you need it to be long to get the points down. This takes time to think about. Even what we did here is just scratching the surface. It takes time. It takes years to mull it over and think about it. But I'm saying it and I'm doing this show because We've got to twig this if we're going to have any argument against the rising tyranny in our world. If we're going to have any argument against those who would see humanity as programmable robots, programmable, hackable machines, that kind of consciousness, which is a choice made, <laughs> uh, is coming in everywhere. And it doesn't benefit you in your life. It doesn't benefit your quest for meaning. It doesn't benefit the project of human freedom. That's for damn sure. It goes in completely the opposite direction. When you had people like Erich Fromm saying things like the, the current state, uh, the, the big fear is that humanity will become slaves. 
or, or no, he says it like this. The fear of the past was that man would become slaves. The fear of the future is that man will become robots. I don't think he was just talking about whether we're getting quantum dots and nanotech injected into us or installed in our brains. Um, I think he was talking about the, the level of consciousness we would be operating from. That humans can operate like a computer when certain firewalls are put up in the mind to block the natural intelligence that we all have access to, but that you got to work at and you got to turn on and it's a struggle and there's effort that needs to be put into it, not even just to activate it for the first time, but that it's sustained endurance that's needed in order to maintain your independent, rational, reasonable, intuitive, and freedom-based volitional mind. That takes work. That takes effort to hone it and perfect it. You've got the toolkit, but you've got to put those tools to work. And what an easy sales pitch these Sam Harris's have. They get to tell you there's no such thing as any good or evil. This, everything's relative and um, especially morality. And you don't really have any free will. Everything is controlled by all these other forces. It's already predetermined. And so therefore, do as thou wilt, man, on a totally different level. You know, go for it. We can justify tyranny. We can justify having an intellectual elite ruling humanity, can't we? We can justify the rule of the overseers because they know best. They have more material scientific knowledge than you do. And so you better trust the science and not the faculties of your own mind. That what if it turns out is literally connected right into the God particle, the Wi-Fi of the universe, where you have the origin of free will, right? That's an it's an unfolding process that you're a part of, that you're a conduit for, that you're expressing, and that you've got a bit of both. There's some, and just like there's some things, like think of it like this: the old, um, some of the old thinkers on this from the ancient world would look at it like there are there's some things in the universe that are fixed, the laws that are fixed. And then there's some things that are mutable, meaning some things can change. We don't have to go to extremes. But what they're doing now with this material, this particular brand of materialist uh, determinism is they're going to an extreme. And the question is, with all the knowledge we've got, with all the great thinkers we have at our disposal that are taking these arguments apart and that you've got all this meltdown happening behind the scenes in the institutions of science and religion at the same time, and you have new ideas coming out, they're trying to control the flow of those new ideas so that you're not seeing the whole spectrum of it. And then you don't have any choice, do you? Because you were given all your choices by the fact checkers, by the cultural engineers, by the behaviorists, by the priests. When you were granted by whatever force that brought you into being, of volitional consciousness to make a choice. And the first choice being, are you going to use this equipment you've been given? Are you going to tap in to the natural intelligence that courses through every part of you? Or are you going to give up on that and say, no, too much work. I'm just going to go and become a machine. Look at the rise of the machines. And I understand why people want to become the machine. It's easier. All you, Everything's answered for you. Everything's done for you. It abnegates your personal responsibility. It negates the need for any kind of morality. It uh, 
takes away the burden of the self that um, Erich Fromm talked about, where he said the frightened individual seeks for somebody or something to tie himself to. He cannot bear to be his own individual self any longer, and he tries frantically to get rid of it and to feel security again by the elimination of this burden, the self. The self, again, not talking ego, we're talking still small voice within you. So I hope that gave you at least some of the arguments on both sides. Utilize your free will to decide for yourself where you sit and then utilize it again to sustain the effort of activating your free will by thinking this through on an ongoing basis and learning more about it and listening to different ideas about it and then introspecting on it and updating where you're at and maybe even coming to different conclusions than I have. Use your superpowers to go and seek the truth because there is a truth to seek. And I believe that that truth is within ultimately. So I hope that uh, helped you guys today a little bit longer, but uh, chew on that. I'll put some posts together for you on my social media. So you go follow up on some of these sources and I'll do more of it on the future if you like this kind of content. So stay tuned here. Remember, my website is dwtruthware.com. That will direct you to all the past shows that I've done, upcoming projects, ongoing projects that I have going on. It'll connect you to Unslave, Cult of the Medics, all these other things that I'm doing. Um, and again, if you'd like to support my work, become a member of Truth Warrior Premium. Um, I promise you won't regret it. It'll at least give you a new smorgasbord of ideas to consider as you uh, activate your free thinking. And uh, I hope that we're able to uh, do more on this in the future. So thanks to everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Please share this out far and wide. And I'll catch you again here very soon again on Truth Warrior. Have a good one, everybody.